Attention, please. Eastern Airlines Flight 19, now ready for departure. Welcome aboard the Walt Disney World Express Monorail. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we're entering the vacation kingdom of the world. There's enough land here to hold all of the ideas and plans we could possibly imagine. We call it Epcot. It will be our experimental prototype city of tomorrow. Welcome to another episode of the Retro Disney World Podcast. Taking you back to the vacation kingdom of the world, the way it was, and the way it is in your memories. All right, welcome to another episode of the Retro Disney World Podcast, the official podcast of the Lake Buena Vista Historical Society. This is episode 72, Maelstrom, where we'll be taking you back to that Norwegian pavilion, the 11th pavilion to open at Epcot, and talking a little bit about, or I should say a little bit, we're going to be going into the depths of uh, of that attraction so i'm your host todd mccartney and sitting in with me as always uh mr jt kuzier how are you tonight jt i'm great we're uh we're back full episode holiday season yeah. we're, we're right in the middle of it that's here right that's right we got some more uh, holiday stuff coming up we need to do and amongst all the planning of retro magic which i i know we'll be talking about a little later as well uh and and our producer from last month and and very, very nice is going to take it up again this month and do the edits. Mr. Hal Bowers, thank you for your help last month, sir. Aloha, Hohele. I'm glad to be here and happy to to get in there and play play audio editor again. Yeah, yeah. Gives us a nice, give me a little break uh, for some things I had to take care of. So, uh, namely, which was actually visiting Florida. So, <laughs> so you helped me get, get a We're trip. We're glad we could help you come down here. That's right. And as always, uh, Mr. Brian P. Miles coming in from uh, Philadelphia. How are you doing tonight, Brian? A season's greetings uh, from Philadelphia, not from the season's greetings tower, which you can get right now by going to uh, lbvhistory.org.donate backslash donate uh, and get the season's greetings tower ornament. There we go. Yes, uh, we do need to. But but yes, uh, I'm doing well. And uh, if you're listening to the other 11 months of the year, hello. <laughs> you're listening as this episode is issued in December 2021, season's greetings, and uh, we're just feeling it here, you know? Yeah, and unlike your Disney calendars that repeat, what, every seven years, your season's greetings can be utilized every year, over and over. Every year, so, and if you yeah. start the holiday season right after Halloween's over, like me, you get like two months to fit in there. That's right. And I'll make a topical reference, uh, how Bowers played the role of Glyn Johns last month. Since the Beatles Get Back just came out and ah. Glenn Johns was the producer on those sessions as opposed to George Martin, who was the normal Beatles producer. So Al Bowers played Glenn Johns. I hope I don't break us up in the process. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't he didn't have as cool as sunglasses on That's either. True. That's true. Glenn, Glenn, did. Glenn had some some outfits going on that on that uh, on that show, yeah. And and how I did fail to mention, uh, you know, I we we always try to I try, always try to say a different nickname for your city. Now I I do have to go outside your city, uh, but you are broadcasting tonight near and close by the Big Guava. I didn't know yeah. if you knew that. Yeah, you the Big city, Guava, right? So there we go. So I got 
checking that one off the list. I got three more. I got to start doing some research to get the rest of these out. So, so nice. This Ybor City is a wonderful historic section of Tampa, famous uh, at one time for cigar rolling. Uh, mm-hmm. And housed a big Cuban population of immigrants who worked in the cigar rolling factories. And then over time, those all closed down and it became a uh, bar and restaurant area. And is uh, to this day um, still that not as not as there awesome as it used to be, um, but it's it's coming back. Um, there there was a time when there was all of the nightlife was concentrated there. It is now since spread out across Tampa, which is actually better. But uh, yeah, fun, well, fun place to go. You just gave a little preview to next month's episode uh, of what I will reference the Tampa Bay. Uh, so we'll, we'll, Oh, okay. Fantastic. Yeah. So little, little hint. Oh, I think I know where you're going with that one. Yeah. You know where I'm going. All right. I think so. I think I got it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, until next month, we'll send uh, JT, let's uh, head over to you for uh, listener mail. We've got a couple that came in, um, after, well, quite a bit after the, the 50th anniversary episode. So, uh, what, what trickled through or what, what came through the, well, uh, some of these, I, I felt like going deep into the mailbag. When I say deep, I mean earlier this year. Uh, this one is from Jason. Uh, Jason reached out and he says, Hi, wanted to let you know I've been in listening to your back catalog uh, while I'm working at home during COVID. And it, it, you would think that was two years ago, but it's probably still happening currently for some people. Uh, He said he was born in 81, but he uh, never had the opportunity to be the Epcot uh, 80s kid like you guys kind of are and uh, didn't make his way to Disney Disney World until 2014. Now, he says he was fortunate enough to chaperone his daughter's middle school jazz band trip to Disney World in January of 2020 and noticed the fiber optic sidewalk in Epcot. Was this an original park feature? Is there a backstory? Uh, he's just curious if you could uh, shed any light on this. The answer might be illuminating. Yeah. There we go. So any any info? Now, I know they're ripped you're, to shreds right now, you're right? You're both getting coal in your stocking for those puns. I want you to know that. <laughs> any, anybody have any background? I, I thought they appeared in the... Um, that innovations era, yes. you know, when they things the the early mid nineties. Correct, correct. Yep, that's it. All right, moving on. <laughs> <laughs> Any anything else for Jason on those or no, I, I mean I remember them appearing. Yeah, they had the swirl patterns and all different things. They were, you know, by if I recall correctly, in the very beginning they did not run during the day and later on they did uh later on in their life lifespan there but no they definitely were not part of the original epcot that was a i mean just by the style of it and everything they did for epcot 94 or whatever that was when when all that stuff went in um yeah and and my only other thought on this too is that you could see them during the day when they turned them on they turned the brightness up and i have been wondering why to this day they don't embed them in the concrete to illuminate the parade route at night Hmm. instead of putting down that tape all the time so that's an idea. Yeah, the tape is definitely more visible during the day, but they, they you can, you know, that, I thought that would be a great idea, you know, but you know what else they could do, Todd? They could just pour a line of gasoline and just light it on that, fire. That would be true. Yeah. Look, like the DeLorean went through here. Time machine. Yeah. 88 miles an hour. I, I have a vague recollection though of there being, so I'm familiar with all the swirly ones. I swear, I don't know if it was a test or if I'm just making this up. 
But I thought that there were some other ones that were much more simple at first that were kind of a little bit closer to Spaceship Earth and not so close to Interventions. Are you sure you're not confusing them with the Michael Jackson, Billy Jean video? <laughs> yeah, perhaps. <laughs> Where perhaps I am. St- stepping on the sidewalk panels that light up underneath him, which I always thought was like, man, I would love to walk on a sidewalk that did that. And then you went to Epcot and you could. That's right. You know, the amazing thing about that video when you watch it back is you can tell that those were triggered by somebody trying to follow his footsteps with switches <laughs> and they're, That's yes. right. they're off. They're not always on. Um, but the, the effect looked great in the video. We were certainly impressed in, you know, 1984, 1985, whenever that was. 82, old man. 82? Wow. Yeah, no. believe, that. believe it or not, oh, it's wow. 82. Wow. Thriller Whoa. and Epcot in the same year. What a... What a year. What a thing. What a year to... Yeah. What a year to be there. All right. Uh, thanks, Jason. Appreciate that one. Uh, uh, 2014 being your first trip, you've got a lot of memories to make, and hopefully we can uh, help you out through the future episodes and past episodes. Uh, Donald's next. Donald, uh, he says, hey, guys, I've been catching up uh, with the show. He uh, just listened to Retro Food Part 2, and he has a question about the Lake Buena Vista Club. Where the houses and buildings on the same site as a modern as the modern day Saratoga Springs, or was everything demolished to make way for the Disney Institute? Basically, he's just curious if uh, any buildings or even the, the turf club specifically. Uh, it, it's he just says it seems a bit old and out of place. Is do you guys know on that? So the yeah. main clubhouse is still like the that big building. That's still the same one that was there before with the restaurant in the back that overlooks right. the lake where the boat comes and picks you up. Yep. That's still there. And there are a couple of other buildings on property. The One of the, uh, not the original place where you would check in for those, because Todd, as you told us, you originally would check in at the preview center. Right. But this, the second building where you would check in um, is now used for cast member um, things. So that building still exists. It's it's no, no longer publicly uh, accessible. It's behind a, you know, guard gate. But there are a few build the stray buildings hanging out still uh, um, there. I think the big change, um, some some of them, I believe, existed during the, t- the time of the Disney Institute. Um, it was during the changeover to Saratoga Springs where like the residences or those like uh, villas and things were finally completely demolished. But there, there were still, I believe, a few of the older style buildings there during the Disney Institute days. I, I have a challenge for you, Todd, and you're, you're big on Google Earth, and this would be a, a, you know the past satellite imagery. I would love to go back to Saratoga Springs. You were just there, mm-hmm. right? I'd like to stand on the former spot of the rock wall that appeared in every Disney Institute <laughs> promo and just look at the camera and say, I can't believe I'm doing that's this. Right. That's because that's what they I'll, always have I'll there. find out where that is for you. So. Okay, so this is an easy one, and I thought this would benefit uh, more more listeners than Dan here. Uh, Dan says he's curious, he's listened and loved to all 71 episodes and many of the mini-shows. But now keep in mind, Dan's been with us almost since the start, it sounds like. He needs some interpretation and, and info on what's the 25-year rule Todd mentions. Uh, the 25-year rule. So it's a rough guide, if you will, that uh, we will begin to th- talk about things uh, when they are at least 25 years of age or have happened at least 25 years in the past. And that's a 
it's a guide. So, you know, being that it's uh, almost 2022, we're graduating, um, you know, in, in, into 1997. So give or take a year or two, something like that. So that's the, the general 25 rule of thumb uh, that we try to somewhat adhere to. So it's not, no, it doesn't have, it's not official, but uh, we don't want to be going and talking about something that happened two years ago and, and trying to give history on it. Uh, we want these things to pass and change and mature and history to be formed that we can then talk about. Okay. Thank you for that clarification. Next up is Michael. Michael is actually a uh, motorcycle. Is he Michael, Michael motorcycle? <laughs> I think it's Michael Knight. I was thinking <laughs> I'm ready, Michael. Michael is actually a, uh, I don't know, former or, or current. He, he was a cast member, at least at some point. And he started roughly in the early 90s. And he actually worked right near Echo Lake at Lakeside News, which is now PV's Frozen Concoctions, or it was. Uh, I'm not even sure what's there. But he says uh, at the time they sold uh, merch, you know, comic books and things of that nature. He did get to see many celebrities like I like to hear about, but mostly for the star of the day program was going on. So Howie Mandel, Jane Russell and Neil Patrick Harris. He even met two members of New Kids on the Block at the commissary, Joey and Jordan. But he's got a great celebrity story for us. Uh, he was actually eating at Wolfgang Puck's, the, the old location in the west side. And uh, he said, we just sat down and we're given menus when Wolfgang Puck himself comes in the front door. He comes right over to us and asks what we were getting. He asked for his recommendation. Now, Brian, I know you're a big restaurateur. If Wolfgang Puck was there, would you ask for his recommendation? Uh, Wolfgang Puck is famous for putting something other than cheese and sauce on pizzas. That's what the guy's <laughs> famous for. Like, oh, white pizza. Like Wolfgang Puck. This is crazy. He's put chicken and Caesar dressing on a pizza. Like, <laughs> That's literally what Spago was in the 1980s. The Wolfgang Puck revolution was he changed pizza from just tomato sauce and cheese. And so I I, I don't know. I mean, would I ask him for, for a place? Yeah, I, don't I, I would just. <laughs> what do you recommend Wolfgang? Yeah, like I would be like, I want him to make me dinner. I don't want him to tell me where to go. Well, now, hold, now that's what he was asking. He was in his restaurant and he said, and Wolfgang walked up and said, what would you like to eat? And he said, what would you recommend? And. Wolfgang recommended the smoked salmon pizza. Okay, so so then from there, go ahead. Wolfgang proceeds to go in the kitchen and make this guy's pizza, just All like right. you just wanted him to do. So yes, I'm into that. That I like that. Except I hate salmon. So uh, <laughs> I, but I have many times told a chef in that scenario, make whatever you want, but don't serve me anything with salmon or olives. Uh, I have like a very few things that I just won't eat if you put them in front of me. Capers, right? No so, capers. Well, capers are basically like baby olives. Ah, so they're delicious. I, I, I don't want capers <laughs> so, either. So Wolfgang Puck says, get the smoked salmon pizza. And you go, no. I'm going to tell you a story about that. So down the street, anybody who visits me here in, in, in Bluebell, Pennsylvania, uh, there's a 50-50 shot. We'll go to Palermo's where I've been eating pizza for the last 37 years. And Yoram, who owns the place, comes comes back to the table one day and he says, what are you guys having? And I just, you know, he says, oh, every day, always a pizza, this or that. He says, I'm going to make you something special. And out comes this pizza that, you know, has various Mediterranean things on it. 
and it is loaded with olives. And I, I just stared at it like, I'm not, I'm not eating this. It's a, you know, it's just so I'm like picking like 40,000 olives off of this thing to eat it. It was, you know, you, sometimes you have to assert yourself and say, yes, chef, I would love to hear what you want. Here's the kind of things I like. G Gordon Ramsay would. <laughs> what are you? You just go off on them. Yeah. 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 All right. So anyways, uh, as uh, Michael's telling the story here, Wolfgang goes into the kitchen to make the pizza. Uh, he, uh, put it into the oven, makes a few rounds in the restaurant and left after a few minutes. When the server brought it out, she said there was way more salmon on it than he usually put <laughs> on it. Wolfgang, uh, I, I wonder how that worked. Was he just in street clothes? Was he in the typical Wolfgang Puck, uh, chef outfit? Like, you know, who's the, maybe it wasn't even Wolfgang himself, but that's, that's, that, that's awesome though, that he actually came in did the whole thing and made your pizza and then, you know, took off. That's really cool. You know, JT, I was at the uh, ground round once and Bozo came in and gave me popcorn. Does that count? <laughs> the Bozo? It was the Bozo. <laughs> Our, Art, Art Smith came over to the table at uh, Homecoming when I was there. Oh, did he? And uh, talked to us and I don't think he made our dinner, but he was there, you know, overseeing the kitchen that night and Making well, sure always, the, lar the lard delivery went well that, that morning. It's nice when the chef when the chef did. And we have one of the one of the best restaurants in the country in Philadelphia called Vetri, and the celebrity chef Mark Vetri. Um, and that is like basically you go in, you don't order off a menu, you just pay for the sitting, and they ask you what you eat and what you don't eat, and then they prepare the meal for you. But kind of Victorian Albert's chef's table style was the same way, so. Uh, there are there are high end places like that where, the sh you know, you just want the chef to do their thing and say, hey, you know, here's the three or four things I don't like. Hey, I don't want to brag, but I got to meet Ronald McDonald once at a McDonald's. <laughs> <laughs> I did get to meet Ronald McDonald before. Uh, he also says he has a bunch of story, including one where they had to redesign the Keystone Clothier Clothier Clothiers, yeah. because of clo because of him. What? So uh, we might we, we'd love to hear that, Michael, as well. Uh, so keep keep the stories coming. And thank you, Michael, for that. All right. One more here. Uh, this is from Mark. Mark uh, goes into a uh, him and his wife. They're from the uh, the UK. They try to visit uh, Walt Disney World every year as much as they can. And uh, long story short, he he was basically planning a trip and he had an omen. He, he looked into an old golf bag. Second hand, it wasn't his, but he was cleaning it out. He found an old Disney World poncho in there. So he thought that was his moment to book his trip. But on that poncho, it actually had Magic Kingdom and Epcot printed on it. And I'm not sure he, could, he said he could send us pictures of it, but I assume it was like some old logo when those were the only two parks around or, or something along those lines. Uh, but uh, he still has it, and uh, he gets comments from Disney Park guests saying, where did you get that? So he's rocking it in the park, says, which is awesome. I'm wondering if, the, so in 1986, we purchased them, and they were clear, and I do remember the logo. It was kind of a stylized spaceship Earth and the with the castle off on the left-hand side, if I recall. Do you know what I'm talking about, Hal? Do you remember seeing them? I was going to say, it's the version of those logos that were all over everything in the 80s, where it was the castle with like the feet trees in front yes. of it. And then the. Yep. That's it. it. Is. Just put in the channel for us. So take a yep. look. There we go. Yeah. I always call them great. the feet trees because they look like feet. <laughs> they, they, <laughs> yes. It's like 
two feet. It's like two feet propped up in front of the castle, like those pictures people take on Instagram of their feet, like in front of the headboard with your feeter on it. (laughs) Well, thanks, uh, Mark. We appreciate that. Send us that picture though, and we'll confirm. uh, You know what's what's what here, but uh, I'd be curious if you golfed at Disney because I don't know. I don't think any of us have really ever. Any guys golfed at Disney World? I don't golf, so <laughs> I don't either. That's it's like one area where we're lacking. Well, that's what but, uh, uh, Joe Barlow's for, who always emails us about the countless rounds of golf that he's played there. And yes. uh, I know Rob, our friend Rob, has, has played golf uh, on property before. Not sure if he played all ninety nine holes back in the day, but or, or a course designed by I, Tom Fazio. No, and I, I have played miniature golf there. If I, if I okay. recall correctly, I've played uh, Winter Summerland and Fantasia Gardens, but I could be misremembering Fantasia Gardens. But how does the I think, front? I think the front four and a half play as compared to the back four and a half on those. Uh, well, it's all the same. You know, the windmills, oh, right. ki- the windmills kill you every time. <laughs> Gotta watch out for windmill. sand traps. You're gonna die, Clint. <laughs> Well, that's going to do it for the mailbag. Uh, to get to get into uh, our mailbag, to send us a message, podcast at retrowdw.com. Send us an email on there, uh, instant message, direct message, uh, Twitter, Facebook, any of those things. We'll uh, try to read them all, try to respond to them all, and there is a chance you could end up on a future episode. So thanks for writing, everybody. All right. Well, it's time for this month's main topic. And as we said at the top of the show, we are taking you back to the mid-80s in Epcot when it was time to expand out to an 11th pavilion and bring in Epcot's first ever thrill attraction, if you can believe as it was billed. So there was a lot of hype for this. It was expansion that everybody had heard that would be coming, and we're still waiting to this day for number 12. But uh, there's a lot to talk about here about the pavilion, but more specifically, we're really going to dive into the attraction Maelstrom and uh, what led up to its opening. We'll go through the ride. Uh, I can't wait to talk about the July 4th spectacular that was on television where they previewed the ride because there's some questions about that that still remain unanswered. But how you have uh, not only produced last month's episode, but you've been busy uh, researching this and getting it ready for us. So how are we going to kick this off this evening and uh, dig into Maelstrom where I don't know. This could be. Is this the first podcast to ever pass this way? <laughs> no, it's not the first. Yeah, it won't be the last either. I mean, so. if it's anything like the way we do stuff, it's if it's if it doesn't have three parts, it's, it was it was it even an attraction? That's <laughs> wait. Are you are you planning multiple no. parts? No. Well, <laughs> oh, okay, good. Not yet, anyway. No. I'll tell you, we probably will. I mean, we may do a small part two just to talk about the the rest of the pavilion since today we're mostly right. just going to talk about the attraction i mean there you know there's the wonderful restaurant there and uh you know there was a lot of work done to, to style the buildings there after real places in norway we're not gonna have time to get into that today um but we will you know probably get into that stuff and some of the sponsors and probably some of the behind the scenes of how the nor of how the pavilion came to be because it started right. as what todd do you remember it was gonna be bathroom that'll be a story for another episode i I think people said they were more denmark you know originally but it was smart enough that look hey we got this land reserve let's do the work now rather than just creating you know something that just looks like a building right get some theming yeah it's not it's it didn't just make a generic building they made something that at least 
you know, looked nice and in, in the hopes that, the, you know, the rest of the pavilion would spring up around it. But. Kind of like African Outpost, actually. <laughs> kind <laughs> right? of exactly like that. But let's talk a little bit about the, the lead up. I find that the ride opening day was really interesting. It was July 5th, 1988. And I find that interesting because I really wonder if this was timed specifically to this 4th of July spectacular that was broadcast on ABC on July 4th, 1988. And uh, there's a lot of interesting press articles I found out about uh, this were saying that um, they sent some people to the attraction and uh, people fell off the boats, that they had too much water thrown on them, uh, and all these other interesting things. So I was always wondering when all of that actually took place because the spectacular was on July 4th as it was broadcast and what's really interesting when the pavilion opened uh, there were a number of dignitaries that came over from Norway to celebrate its opening and that was recorded and actually broadcast on Nordic television which I thought was really interesting and that portion of that celebration uh, whenever I, I don't know the date that that happened was actually incorporated into the US July 4th celebration so there was a lot of activity and flurry going on in the pavilion uh, before July July 4th and July well, 5th. But it's not surprising that it was shown on TV in Norway as taxpayers from Norway funded part of the pavilion. Absolutely. So they probably yeah. wanted to show them what they were getting for their money. Absolutely. And in fact, I, I, I was reading on, on something here, the first $3.2 million in profit went to the company North Show, who helped put the, put this all together. Uh, and then Disney got a little bit, and then there was a, sp a specific uh, percentage split after that. So, yeah, you, you footed this bill. Look what you got, and, and uh, come fly, you know, 14 hours, and <laughs> you can come visit your Norway in Florida. So, <laughs> um, But how I, I, I think maybe we should talk a little bit about that that special, and, and I think what's interesting about it, because we're going to walk through the ride, and I think if we take a look at how that special presented the ride, there was a massive difference between the hype and the actual ride itself. Oh, so, that's true. Yeah. Right. So how about we start there? Does that sound like a plan? Sure. Let's do it. Sounds just like we'll happened to me. And we'll walk through the queue because the queue is extremely exciting with its wall carpet. <laughs> so, um, so I'm just going to recommend, gentlemen, about seven months we really hone in on this television special and do this for july 4th because not only we're we going to talk about you uh, may elstrom here but uh this featured the beach boys with none other than the fat boys on the beach of the grand floridian doing the right. remember the the joint venture between the two Yes. Wipe out. Wipe it out. Yeah. Uh, and then the Beach Boys came back and did Kokomo with none other. Who, who would you put on steel drums and bongos? Uncle Jesse. John Stamos from Full House. So he's been in the living seas and he's been in the grand flirting with the Beach Boys. I mean, what a what a what a career he's got there so yes uh, but the reason I, I bring up the music part of it is because we're going to talk a little bit about the music selection for the introduction of maelstrom so um america's most beloved weatherman brian why don't you tell 
people a little bit about who who that is and uh, how popular Mr. Willard Scott was uh, the, the on the recent, Today Show. Recently departed Willard mm-hmm. Scott just passed a few months back. At uh, he was in his nineties, um, and Willard was the weatherman on the Today Show for a good twenty plus year run uh, as the regular guy, and then. He would fill in uh, periodically for years and years and years after that. Willard would just show up whenever Al Roker was on vacation. All of a sudden, Willard was there doing them remotely from his home in Washington, D.C., usually, um, and not in studio. But Willard was uh, the jolly uh, weatherman on the Today Show. Uh, Prior to that, early in his career, he was the first... You're going to hear a theme here tonight. He was the first Ronald McDonald in McDonald's commercial. He was the first guy to clown and play Ronald McDonald. Uh, But yeah, Willard uh, would do the weather every morning on the Today Show. And his big hook was uh, Smuckers, an Ohio jelly and jam corporation there, JT, from your your folks there in Ohio. Big, big employer there. Uh, Smuckers would sponsor uh, Willard announcing people's 100th or more birthdays. Let's check and see what our birthday buddies are today, shall we? As we turn the Smucker's Jam Jar around the old circle, take a look, if you will, and we have the lovely Callie. I always love that name, Callie. I don't name, Callie Warren. Brooklyn, New York, 100 years old, devoted church member, enjoys entertaining, and loves to cook for friends. And sharp as a tack, she can tell you how to make a sweet potato pie without a recipe. How about that? He was a beloved fella. He was the perfect guy that you would expect. For, but that's always who Disney, you know, with Regis and Kathy Lee Absolutely. and Joan London and Ben Vereen and, the, you know, the kinds of people that John Ritter, you know, they always kind of had those those everybody loves people personalities. Right. 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 Exactly. They don't have so a they, lot of like I'll, sad people on their shows, do they? No, <laughs> there was not. No, there was not a lot of uh, introspective. There wasn't a whole lot of Janine Garofalo hosting specials. You know? exactly. the, the sharp, ironic, you know. Uh, he he played the really gross Ronald McDonald, the one with the cup on his well, nose. Well, it was the first iteration, and clowns are creepy to start with. So, you know, you're 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 starting from the back nine there. Right. right. Uh, and, uh, yeah, the first one was really, you know. It's like seeing any any Easter bunny uh, costume prior to Disney creating the cherubic Easter bunny that they used in the in the 80s in the parks. Like literally every Easter bunny costume you see prior to that anywhere is just horrifying. <laughs> they look like the ones in Donnie Brasco. Is that right? Yeah. The right show. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Creepy. Like they're just horrifying. And then all of a sudden Disney like. Turned him into like the ha- well, basically they took the white rabbit costume and just dressed it up a bit and turned it into the Easter Bunny. But yeah, we've we've I fear we've digressed here because we've talked about Willard Scott. We've that's right. So so Willard gets the role here of introducing us to Maelstrom, which actually takes almost the entire show. He talks a little bit about how exciting it's going to be, and they're constantly teasing, and they show the clip I mentioned earlier. Uh, and then Willard sits down and interviews one of the cast members from Norway. And it's, it's a little that that whole section's a little odd. This is a troll. And this is not a troll. This is Gita. And like all the townspeople in Epcot's Norway Pavilion, 
Gita is actually from Norway. Hey, do they have a 4th of July celebration in Norway? Yes, we have, but we have ours in May. Got everything, parades and everything, but not the fireworks. Oh, oh my dear. Wherever you are, there are fireworks. But um, what he does eventually do is he, he's, he does not know if he wants to go on the ride. He's uh, kind of scared about doing this, but he decides that he's going to forego the attraction. And he's standing actually in the exit, which I thought was very interesting because they probably could not get any camera set up to go ac- shoot across the boats and be able to see him in a crowd behind him. And it would be really boring because it would just be that wall we'll talk about. Um, it wouldn't be the mural side. So he, they have their ribbons across and he's got the entire boat in front of him is decked out. They're all wearing yellow uh, raincoats. Hey, hey, you know, it's decision time and Webster defines Maelstrom as a powerful, often violent whirlpool sucking in objects within a given radius. To ride or not to ride? That is the question. I have the answer. No, I'm not riding. You ride. Good luck, guys. Here we go. <laughs> you don't see anything. They, they cut to commercial and there's another 25 minutes of parade and excitement and finally they come back and how you and I found this really interesting because they, their selection of songs to introduce the attraction um, with the preview was was really odd. And what's really interesting is the boat comes back. They interview them. Hey, all right. Looks like you made it. Maybe you got a little wet out there. huh? Hey, tell me, what'd you think about it? Oh, it was great. I really enjoyed it. Fantastic. It great family ride, and I especially enjoyed the storm at the North Sea. Oh, that's fun. You like things like that. Uh-huh. Oh, boy, I'm glad I didn't go. And then they actually show the attraction. So everything's kind of really wacky, wackily out of sequence. Um, and then they get into a one minute preview that actually has some of the scenes in the wrong order as well. And uh, how you and I were discussing the two songs in this, because it's a very odd selection of songs. Like, yeah. what do you what do you put in a, in a quick montage of Maelstrom? And they open up with Lords of Karma by Joe Satriani. <laughs> and then shortly thereafter, it kicks into Just Like Heaven by The Cure, which and, and they've they've done it in a way that you don't hear any of the well, Joe Satriani is a guitarist, so you don't hear any lyrics there anyway. But they cut before any of The Cure. So how you're a musician. What it was just an interesting, <laughs> odd pick of songs it to was, celebrate I, the opening of this attraction. I, I don't know why, you know, I guess you would think like, Oh, why don't you go with, you know, there's not a lot of music, I guess, in the attraction as it is. There's a little bit. Um, and we'll talk about some of that when, when we get there, because there were supposed to be a, a famous songwriting duo was supposed to write a song for that, but it didn't pan out. Um, yeah. I guess they were just trying to make it as exciting as possible. And they were using, you know, s- songs that were popular at the time. Right. Maybe, maybe because it was more of a thrill attraction. They wanted to have, you know, some upbeat, up-tempo music. So yep. it just p- pumped you. And it, I mean, it, it seemed very effective watching it, the it, watching that part of the show. But you, in retrospect, you're like, what in the world is... Right. Because you and I were like... Okay, well, if there are bands from Norway, like, yeah. uh, aha, right. a very famous right. band from Norway in the 1980s, Take yep. On Me seems right. like a very appropriate song to play, like, take on the ch- the challenge and the thrills. Right, right. Nope. They go nope. with the band from England and exactly. the guy from California. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? Why not? 
So that little clip there runs only a minute. And I find what's interesting, as I mentioned, it's out of order. There's added fog. There's added effects. And I swear when they're going after they're in the North Sea, you can almost see somebody off screen throwing a bucket of water at the people. So <laughs> it gave a, a very uh, misinterpretive view of, of what the attraction really was. Uh, and then, of course, it ends back again with Will and Scott at the exit, still at the exit. Nobody ever saw the queue at this point. Uh, and they have the nice fishing village behind him. And he's you know saying what a fantastic attraction is. Come on down. And, you know, ironically, it op- literally opened the next day after he spoke of it. Now, what I want to know is, uh, do you think he was actually scared or do you think it was a bit? <laughs> it was a bit. There was. You, okay. He, he talks this whole thing up like, you know, oh, that's just not for me. And, uh, and I, maybe the guy had some back problems or something. I have no idea, you know, but they could have filmed him on the attraction because they certainly did have cameras in the attraction. And it was that one specific boat that went through. It wasn't multiple boats. You could see it was the same people every time. So. They must have gone through it a few times. There were tons of examples of shows where they filmed, you know, the the host or the uh, celebrity on the attraction when they opened it up. Right. You know, Julie Andrews, Andrews going through It's a Small World by herself in the opening special. And so that that wasn't an unusual. I have a, I have this weird inkling that like they were like, we're going to put you in the boat and we're going to you're going to talk about how great it was. And he was like, he really was like, nope. I am nope. not getting, I am not getting <laughs> well, in that boat. Remember, it was billed as a high seas Viking adventure. And actually, I've got some, uh, you know, clips here the, um, from the newspaper um, as, as what, it, you know, how it was described. So um, it's a stormy boat ride through the world's fierce looking trolls and Vikings. Um, they climb into a dragon boat and growling polar bears blown past a giant rain swept oil platform um you know so the, these these articles are using words like plunge and, and into the depths and who knows it could have been hype it could have been real but a mix of everything i really think from a promotional standpoint you know epcot hadn't had a new attraction at this point since right. horizons right so the the fact that they were opening up a new pavilion uh you know eisner's fully in charge it's like he loves the show and the ballyhoo and he he they want to attract you know a younger generation which uh you know but they don't <laughs> they don't have any roller coasters or things yet right. so yeah i i think it was intentionally hyped up uh for the the excitement factor to, to try to draw in that you know that younger you know teenage audience uh that his Absolutely. son was a part of which is why they you know got into splash mountain and did all these other you know started to do real thrill rides so yeah, yeah i i think they were trying to hype it up as much as possible and, and appeal to the teens so they're like you know across Let's the whole board yeah. like oh get the music and, the teens like get and in my research they they also did a lot of these you know, the Sunday paper advertising segments, which as I started to research, it was in every major newspaper across the United States. Uh, I have the one from the Boston Globe, it doesn't matter, the Miami Herald or the Union Day Sun or whatever you want to call it. Uh, and to your point and, and to what I was saying earlier, this is how this one was specifically built. Now, you got to remember, this is being written by Disney, right? This is their advertising section. And it is don't miss a thrilling ride on Maelstrom, the North Sea Viking adventure that takes you backwards, in quotes, down swirling, raging rapids rapids to the mythical land of a three-headed troll. After experiencing Maelstrom, you'll know just how rugged these seafaring folks really were. Survivors of this harrowing ride with storm behind 
disembark into a fishing village. Willard is not going on the ride with us, I hate to say, <laughs> but uh, why don't we proceed uh, under the sign that was going to have an orig- a different name and uh, we'll we'll go through a, a hallway of carpet. That's right. You know, Todd, if, uh, if an Epcot attraction doesn't have a carpeted hallway, is it is it really an Epcot attraction? Uh, Maelstrom's development has a very interesting, convoluted history. Uh, I was able to talk with the original show writer Mark Rhodes and the production designer Paul Torgino to get some insight on how the attraction that we grew up uh, came to be. The project started off with a bake-off, so Joe Rohde and Mark Rhodes worked on one idea for a 15-minute Pirates of the Caribbean-styled attraction about the day in the life of Viking, starting from dawn and running till dusk. Uh, Joe gave Mark a stack of books on Vikings to read, and he developed a complete script for the ride, while Joe worked on conceptual art. Uh, Meanwhile, longtime Imagineer Bob Kurzweil brought in Paul Torgino from the model shop to help him create paper and foam core models of a ride about the trolls of Norwegian folklore, which come in a variety of shapes and sizes. So, with one idea being rooted in history and the other in fantasy, the teams felt like they had a nice variety of ideas to present to Norse show as long as they could get Marty Sklar, Randy Bright, and eventually Michael Eisner, Frank Wells, and Jeffrey Katzenberg to sign off on it. Mark Rhodes told me about the day that Joe Rody gave his pitch to the executive team. Uh, he was given his pitch about the ride, things going fine, and Jeffrey Katzenberg stopped him, and he basically said, like, that's nice, but what's the hook? Like, you know, what's the thing that's going to grab people? And apparently Joe Rody just kind of improvised, like, oh, well... Uh, you know, these trolls will grab your boat and turn it around backwards and then you'll do the rest <laughs> of the ride backwards. Just apparently pulled this out of thin air. And wow. uh, that apparently satisfied all of them. They're like, oh, all right, that sounds good. Um, that's it. Great <laughs> that's idea. It. Roll with it. Which honestly I find ironic and hilarious because is that not the same exact thing about Everest? that yeah but it is yeah you get to the top and then all of a sudden you're back back over the falls except you're and you when you stop and go back the other way guess what there's something there pushing you the other way which is exactly what happened in Norway. so i don't know i just thought that was an interesting there's only only so many keys on the piano and it's only so many ways you can tickle them right (laughs) i mean it's impossible to steal from yourself so true true all right So while this is going on, the Trolls team brought the Sherman brothers into WED to look at the model and the script so they could write a song for the attraction. Can you imagine if the Norway Pavilion had a Sherman brothers song in it? Like (laughs) so many of the other good ones. It's a troll world after all. (laughs) We finally have uh, an earworm for Epcot, right? Another earworm. So. A few days after meeting with the Shermans, uh, the team of Bob Kurtzwheel, Randy Bright, Marty Sklar, and Mark Rhodes presented both of the concepts to North Show representatives in hopes they would pick one. Well, the sponsors liked the boat ride concept, but they weren't really interested in having trolls or Vikings represent their nation. They saw Norway as a progressive modern country, and although their folklore and early history were important, it wasn't the way that they wanted their country represented. Uh, which actually, I think, begs a side discussion, because if, if we think about the other pavilions in World Showcase, they are all very much from this sort of historical, uh, old-time, sort of touristy perspective. There's not really much in any of the countries 
that are contemporary. Do you, do you agree? I, I agree 100%. I mean, you, you don't see modern Japan. You don't see anything that is any more than what you would think as old world, right? That's all you see. I mean, it's the oldest parts of, of Bavarian Germany, yeah. you know, Venice in Italy, and cer- certainly all of the cities that are represented in Epcot have skyscrapers and office buildings and sports stadiums and things like we have everywhere else. I mean, is it fair to say the most recent thing in all of World Showcase would be the Eiffel Tower in the 1800s? Possibly. Right? I'd have to think about that. So we have uh, old Mexican pyramids and certainly the buildings in China are all ancient. Right. You have the Doge's Palace in, in Italy and El Campanile. That's all very, very old. Um, yeah. I mean, the streets of Paris, <laughs> at, least, yeah. at least the Eiffel Tower itself. Chateau Laurier may be a little bit new. I don't know which Chateau uh, Laurier or Chateau Frontenac is, which, whichever one that they're uh, trying to, to uh, imitate there. Um, yeah. Late, eight, late 1800s. Yeah. But so 1800s is probably it. Maybe those two. Yeah. But it is this very, and it isn't kind of interesting. It's like we, I, you know, I think about the way that the Africa Pavilion would have been presented, and mm-hmm. uh, I, I do wonder if you, you know, part of the idea behind these countries, of course, is to try to drive tourism to to the, the actual countries and get people interested in it. So, absolutely, you know, as for tourism, you know, showing old stuff that you can go and visit in tourist areas is is certainly compelling. Uh, but I do kind of wonder if Epcot does some of those countries a disservice and that it, it makes our mindset think about things being more primitive in those countries than they really are. I mean, had they built the Equatorial Africa Pavilion? I mean, we already have this vague concept. You know, if you think of Africa, I think we think of the Sahara, uh, the Sahara or the Serengeti Plain, you know, trees, animals. We don't think about you know, bustling cities and towns and things being pretty much exactly the way the way they are today. I, I think if we <laughs> right. went to Morocco, we would probably be shocked that it's not all earthen buildings and <laughs> mosaic tile. It's like it's just a modern city. So I don't know. So I think that's interesting that that the Norwegian sponsors are like, hey, we this is this is great, but this is not necessarily who we are. Um, so, um, Paul told me that the, the sponsors, they really wanted more of a travelogue. So they wanted to show a lot of the different things that they felt make Norway unique. So, um, Bob Kurtzville and Randy Bright came out of that meeting literally with a list of things that the sponsored wanted to see in a ride. So you, <laughs> you want to guess what was on that list? That sponsors would want to see in a so ride. So things that the sponsors would want to see on the ride. Just take a take a fish, rolls. fish, fish, um, oil, polar bears, oil, fjords, fjords. Yeah, yeah, trolls, yeah. trolls. Yeah, lightning, <laughs> lightning. I heard someone say polar bears. Yeah, yeah. That snow. That's you've pretty much hit the list. Vikings, a fishing village. Polar bears, a fjord, an oil rig, and maybe a troll or two. Like, okay, maybe some trolls, because that's your thing. And anything uh, that couldn't show up in the ride could, would be put in the movie. Um, 
which incidentally was supposed to play before the ride. So that way, when you got on the ride, you knew what you were seeing. That's a um, novel thought that, that didn't. Yeah. And that's <laughs> this is one of again, this is one of those convoluted parts of the development of the attraction uh, where, the, you know, we we love it. Right. It's we love the attraction, but there are parts of it where you're just like, this makes no sense to me. Like, why do we walk through this hallway of carpet with some flags on the wall, hop on, go through the attraction and then go sit down and see a movie about the stuff that we just saw. And then probably we don't sit down and see the movie and people just like run through the theater to get to the other side without stopping. <laughs> and the answer is it was supposed to be the other way around. It was supposed to be you went into the like every like literally every other show in Epcot. You would go in. That movie was supposed to be a pre-show. You would then get on the ride and then go on the ride and walk through a very plain hallway in order to leave. And we'll share with everyone uh, as we get towards the end of the ride, uh, Tony Baxter's opinions and critique of the ride. And that's one of them, that a pre-show is generally to kill time and mildly entertain you while you're waiting to board. And putting it at the end of the ride uh, is counterproductive yeah i mean there's something psychological <laughs> with it too right when you're waiting for an attraction you the, the movement moving into something you haven't seen before right. kills time in your mind um so there's a psychological aspect to that 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 was was lost so uh, how what was the re and and i find this really interesting because the fact that you said it was reversed i really would like to know when that happened because why was willard scott with the people boarding the boat in what we know is the exit. You know, I yeah. know it wasn't the right way, but you know what I'm saying? It, it's it's really interesting. So it, it happened late in the ride's development. Um part of the part of the team that that handles the logistics got concerned because the size of the theater was big enough. Uh, and I don't have that number in front of me, unfortunately, but they were concerned about dumping, say like 300 people out into the load area in one fell swoop because they didn't do two theaters for whatever reason. It was not designed uh, with two yeah. theaters like the Living Seas or other places, which kind of solves that problem with the, with the tiered. You know, we run this one, then we run that one. Even the Haunted Mansion, the stretch room, it's the old like we would do this stretch room, and then we do that stretch room. So you're kind of timing out how many people are getting dumped into load at one time. They didn't do sure. that. It was planned as one theater. Um, with beautiful seats. Oh my gosh. I mean, if you've, if you never oh, got to go yeah. sit in the theater, the woodwork, uh, on the backing of the seats was amazing. And very uncomfortable. Yes. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I but, mean, it, it was beautiful, but it was very uncomfortable. Yeah. Yep. Um, R rough estimate how I'm guessing 250 seats in there if I counted them quickly okay. and roughly. So that's it. So they were they were freaked out about the idea of dumping 250 people into like a tiny load area, which is basically what happens, you know, the way the way that thing is kind of fit together. So it was a last minute decision to. Well, I won't say last minute because obviously well, they, built, say, it, they built it. it but yeah. Right. So it was built. It was, this was all a, a last minute decision in the design of it because they could have 
built this the the footprint could have been different to support two smaller theaters and only dumping out 125 right. so they tons, they did so. not construct it open it and then go oh crap we need to switch these around that mm. oh crap moment happened before they built it and I, and i think it ruined to an extent that switch completely goofed up everything about the way that the ride works it uh, did but it did provide space for arendelle so i mean you know you can look <laughs> at the future there so it did and ironically it's like now you go in the way that you were you go in through the exit and yep. exit out the front so it's kind of the it was restored the way it was supposed to be in a way yeah yeah it's it it, it, it it's very interesting that it, it went yeah. back that way so. crazy um, so this is like wall carpet what this is our this is one of the one of the big wall carpet places right yeah i mean it really, was just, when you think about it the whole place was carpet right on the walls and then of course it leads you to it had white oak trim if i recall everything was a white oak trim with Mm -hmm. a high high gloss poly finish on it so and just so many norwegian Uh, flags still is in the it still is in the gift shop if you want to look back on some of the originals i think it is yeah there's a lot of that woodwork there like even the seat backs were the that wood color yes that cool so, so Paul, uh, Bob Kersfield, Randy Bright, Joe Rody got together and they tried to figure out how to take all these seemingly incompatible elements and mesh them together. And so apparently Bob came up with the time travel idea with the sea being kind of the device that ties everything together. So the traction would start with Vikings, then go to trolls and then put the guests into modern times to see the rest of the thing. So it's Spaceship Norway instead of Spaceship Earth. <laughs> yeah, pretty. <laughs> and it's the history of Norway instead of the history of communication. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. At this point, uh, Joe Rody left the project, so he never got to work on the final version of Maelstrom at all. Uh, he ended up heading up a project called Texpo, which was a uh, some kind of thing in Texas. Not really sure exactly what it was. I uh, can't find much info about it, but uh, he was off. Um, so with that new concept approved by the sponsors, the team, uh, sat down and got to work. So the track layout was created in a CAD system. So they started to use computers then. Um, and I believe that was by the project engineer, uh, Dave and Wick. And then what happened is, um, Bob Kurtzville would get printouts of the track layout and bring them down to Paul and they would sit down and then work out the details of each scene. There were no drawings done of this. There were there was no concept art. This Bob Kurtzville guy would literally sit down next to Paul and go like, I want this in this scene. This scene should have some polar bears in it doing stuff. He'd make little like foam core stuff and just kind of work out the place of, of it all. And then mm-hmm. they go like, oh, move that over, move that an inch over there, move that over there get an approval for that. And then they would go and build like a nicer scale model of it. But there were literally no, no concept art drawings done for this until later after, after it was done, there were some, which is such a fascinating way to work. Let's kind of go scene by scene, I guess. And you guys jump in here as you, as you see fit to add details that you, uh, that you like. Um, so let's so do you, you walk through the, the wall carpet hallway uh, out to the load area and in the lower area is a giant mural that I think people still talk about today. Uh, it's it's yeah, it's it's got a place in everybody's heart and it is still talked about today. It's, it's, it's a fantastic mural and and there's just some 
iconic folks on there, the way that they've been um, portrayed. I mean, the, the the rugged Norwegian guy with the with the with the the hard hat on, or the medical nurse on the right hand. They just have this sweeping look to them. You know, there's cold air. You know, there's wind blowing. It's it it's fantastic. I mean, it's an absolutely wonderful mural. Um, and it's a shame. I mean, just like the one in Horizons, it's a shame that that wasn't. Well, maybe it was preserved, but who knows? Yeah. So. Now it it was kind of like it was kind of like the pre-show for <laughs> since they couldn't do the pre-show. <laughs> you can look at this big mural. They kind of threw every element from the show as a teaser in there. So it had you know forest trolls and cruise ships and fishing boats mm-hmm. and a fishing village and oil rigs and fjords and reindeer. There was a Viking ship with the one intentional hidden Mickey of the like, there was Mickey Mouse ears painted on one of the Vikings. Oh, that's right. Um, Forgot about that. Yeah. um, And uh, apparently that was done by Terry, the scenic painter. I don't know if Terry's last name, but Terry, you Terry's the guy that put the ears on the Viking Um, polar bears. There was also, and I don't know which one of, the, there was a, a tall ship on there. And unfortunately, I don't know my my Norwegian tall ships as much as I should. <laughs> but the big white tall ship is either the Strasrad Lekimul, the Sarlandit, or the Christian Radish. I don't know which one. So if anyone out there was a Norwegian tall ship expert and can tell me which one of those three tall ships is depicted on the mural... Uh, I would love that. I, I believe there is also a depiction of one of those. I didn't have enough time, unfortunately, to get this worked out before the episode. I believe one of those ships was also responsible for an Arctic expedition. And that's also depicted on the mural. If if there are any Arctic expedition uh, fans that can tell me which thing is in there, you know, right Write us at podcast at retrowdw.com, please. And uh, let me get the facts straight. Because so there's a lot. There's a lot packed in there. Um, so we talked about the ears on on uh, Mickey, right? Or the Mickey ears on the Viking. Yep. Which is was yeah. just in, in the mural. Yes. Yeah, totally unapproved. Just done in there. Um, the the head Disney's head mural painter at the time, Bill Anderson. He's the guy at the ship's wheel. And his daughter is the nurse. So they were the the models used for, for that painting, which is. Yeah, oh, wow. There you go. Uh, so, somebody said here, I just find a quote about this, that mural taught them that Norwegian cruises are the best options for people with heart conditions because the cruise director doubles as a registered nurse. Oh, yeah. wow. I don't I mean, I think just in look. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's that. That could be true. Anyways. All right. So we have those wonderful Viking boats. Um, this is probably a good time to mention too how is because this pavilion was so big there was a there's not a lot of information on this one this one either but uh, let let me at least uh, give you a little idea of what we're looking at here uh, there was a boat made called the Norseman um, and uh, it was a 50 foot re- wooden replica of a Scandinavian ship and there was a project called the Millennial Vinland Project which I cannot find any information on but this boat was this replica boat was made um and then it 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 um sailed in september 1986 after a north sea voyage it started in nova scotia uh and it was led by a gentleman named captain 
uh, I want to see if I can say his name here, right? Uh, Jean Boger Godal. I gave that probably a little more French influence than I should have. It's a little, little more Nordic. Uh, and he's well renowned for uh, information and, and the, the t- traditional wooden boats of Norwegian culture. And, and he was the captain. What's interesting is they only took it to New York and then they threw it on a truck and sent it to <laughs> So, which was, which was really interesting. You came all the way across the ocean and you couldn't take it down to the warm waters, I guess. I don't know. Um, but there's not a lot of information on this. It was celebrated there. It was tied up outside the pavilion for a period of time, uh, but is a true, true uh, replica. And it was modeled after a ship used by Bjarni Hjufusen. I'm butchering that. Um, and uh, the, the, some believe that he landed in the, in the New World in the 10th, the 10th century. So um, I hope to get more information on that. But there was a couple tweets uh, and such that came out a few weeks ago. And I, and I decided to go down this rabbit hole and try to get more information. Um, and John Godal still has a... He's, he's still around. I think he's in his 80s and he's he's got a Facebook profile. So, uh, however, it's all in Norwegian. So I don't know if he speaks English, but possibly <laughs> we can find out a little more details on it. I just find fascinating that, you know, oh, yeah, we made this historical boat and we're just going to like sell it across the Atlantic and give it to you, Disney. So I, I thought that's rather interesting. That's very but, nice of them. Uh, yeah. Anyways. Yes. Be that as it may. All right. So we get on our we get on our beautiful Viking longboat. And we go through a hole in the wall and around a corner and uh, we see uh, to, to get us started, we hear, I think, one of the most iconic lines in all of Disney attractions, which I will have Mr. Brian P. Miles do for us right now. You are not the first to pass this way, nor will you be the last. <laughs> For a ride that doesn't have a lot of dialogue, the the narration that is in it is is very good. Some of the best written stuff, I think, in all of Epcot. I, it, it was eminently quotable. Uh, and s- part of the reason the ride, as we move through it, is so memorable, too, is because they were working in a small space, it was very tight. Uh, there, there wasn't a lot of forgettable parts of it. Each piece of it had its own little impact and, and was tightly designed and it was short enough that, and thrilling. There was a bit of a thrill in there and you splash down at the end and there, there's this beautifully detailed fishing village that you just wish there were buildings you could walk into. Uh, you didn't mind waiting for the doors to open to the theater while you were standing there in that awkward little fishing village. <laughs> uh, so everything about the ride kind of endeared itself to people when, as we complete discussion of it, we'll say it really shouldn't have because <laughs> it was it wasn't that like earth shattering. Right. It, it, it yeah. was an attraction that somehow transcended itself. Mm-hmm. Somehow. And, um, and it may also have been all of these things we're talking about, the tight writing and and some of the effects and stuff we'll talk about in the ride. It, there was that era. We, we talk about when they opened Epcot, how you had this, it was the, the last great work of the original generation of Disneyland and Walt Disney World Imagineers. You know, they, they, they all came back for one last mission when, when they opened all the Epcot attractions. And then there's that period in the late 80s, early 90s, when they did Disney MGM Studios, where it was this meshing of 
two generations of of you know the the all of the understudies of the original Imagineers kind of having unlimited opportunities to do their thing in the Wells Eisner era. And so you got all this great stuff and you get the, you know, we always, the great movie ride, the apex of, of animatronic rides. And, uh, and then there's a decline after that and then <laughs> budget cutting and things where like one great effect makes a ride instead of having a room after room full of great effects. Right. Um, so, uh, which you see a bit in great movie ride when we eventually do that. Yeah. Well, you know, spe episode, speaking but. of great effects, as we are climbing up the lift hill. Yes. It is the reincarnation or reuse of the Delta Dream Flight fan blade effect, that, right? That eye, the the <laughs> the, the eye that comes out? eye of the of the statue there. Yeah. Uh, and it's angled down the lift hill with that blue green light and it, the eye comes on, it says it's, you know, what you just said and uh, and then it goes off as you as you come close to the top. I mean, that was just lift hills are boring, right? And this actually made a lift hill interesting and actually set the, the the tone of you are not the first to pass this way when you are going up a 35 degree incline <laughs> and you've got an eye looking down at you and it's kind of spinning. That That's a bit of storytelling that you don't get on most attractions. It, it is. It really takes a boring element of an attraction and turns it into something interesting. And that was uh, that is supposed to be the god Odin who is who is telling you this. <gasps> oh! Great Odin's Raven. <laughs> <laughs> and and surprisingly, it, it was a painted flat. It wasn't even a dimensional statue of the eye. It was literally just like a piece of plywood with with a great, great painting of him on there with a hole where the effect came through. And this is something I did not realize because I'm I only ever looked at the eye because it was so compelling, though walls around us were actually rock with petroglyphs uh carved wow. in them which i never noticed no ever <laughs> well, well now we have to go back and ride it right yeah. <laughs> uh, so well uh, you know it's funny you go back and ride it you know this is one of the few attractions that we have been able to talk about on this show that have videos in hd there's there's not a lot that That's we've true. been able to. And this is, you know, we talked about the 25 year rule, right? The reason we're talking about this is 25 years because it opened 25 years ago. It's only been gone seven years. Is it now eight years? Something like that. Um, so more information on the 25 year rule it does not apply when something leaves the park, but the historical aspect of it. So, <laughs> uh, so you know, one of the ones that I looked at and and still have open as, as we're going through here, I'm looking is HD. And um, now now how I got to go and see if we can see the petroglyphs on there. So sure. Well, and you'll have to and by that, you'll have to see what stuff is still working, because I'm sure as the years went by, things went missing and broke and whatnot. So, oh, yeah, it all it all may not like I remember. Well, well, we'll get there when we get there. We'll get to the, yeah, we'll get there. We'll get there. <laughs> So, uh, so let's so, crest so the lift hill here. So after we get up to the lift hill, we kind of drop down into the water and start going through a Viking village. So there, our first scene depicts Vikings in their village, uh, putting supplies on a longboat, getting ready to set off on a sea voyage. I don't know if it's a war voyage or a voyage of exploration, but they're definitely getting on the boat and they're going somewhere. Um, and it's a neat scene with all kinds of detail, uh, including there's a reproduction of the Osberg cart, 
um, which is on display at the Viking Ship Museum in, in Oslo, where the little boy, that's, that scene is filmed where the little boy goes and touches or is about to touch the mm-hmm. Viking ship in the, yeah. in the post show. Um, and actually, Paul told me a funny story. He said that um, while he was working on that particular uh, setup uh, in model form, Marty Sklar and Randy Bright came down to review the model. And Randy took one look at it and said, it looks like a parking lot sale at Kmart. And so Paul <laughs> removed about half of the props from the little model, and then it was approved to go into production. Um, so I guess he just had stuff, <laughs> stuff everywhere, which I assume if you're getting a Viking ship ready, there was all kinds of things on that. But, you know, there was um, I'm trying to think probably about six or seven animatronic figures in that scene. Uh, yeah. You know, kids it, and moms. And I don't know if this is where. Well, I'm going to assume that this is where the budget cut started because I remember riding this for the very first time and just feeling that it was like, that's it? That what we we just went past like three automatronics at a pretty high rate of speed, and I don't even know what they said about it, and you're off to another scene. So it was a very detailed scene, and I felt a little jaded by the use of black lights too mm. you know it just didn't and i get we use black lights you know they're used in ways to illuminate things they're used very efficiently in spaceship earth for especially like the roman scene and other things and right or to give color and brightness to something that is also sublit by another light or has highlights but here i just i felt it was uh, and this is me going back to my you know 14 year 15 year old self here uh, like it was a carnival attraction it just didn't have mm. the pull that i thought i felt and that's that's me right so. now i will i will tell you something about the speed of the ride it is much faster than they ever anticipated they not that they weren't going for a thrilling ride with the sections that they were going on but it was a case where they had planned out that ride to have a certain length of time and being water dynamics and it's 1986 and there's no previs modeling like they didn't know how fast that ride was going to be until they literally put water in it and got boats in it and got it to go and during the tail end of the installation and this could be one of the reasons that it opened late like they were literally cutting tape and like trying to cutting down the length of scenes and things to try to communicate as much as they could and reprogramming audio animatronics to like deal with this much shorter um, ride time than what they had anticipated when they were actually planning out the attraction. So it's highly likely that you were supposed to be able to enjoy a little bit more of that scene before you scooted past it. So it makes, makes total sense because I felt I felt so so rushed so quickly. Right, you're right. You didn't catch it no. all. There's, and there's Not a lot of things to look in there too because all you know. Also, if I recall correctly, you know there were some fire effects in there, and then mm-hmm. like there was yeah, a burning a lot of them. Yeah, and yeah. then there were even like fake ones projected on the walls where the correct like there were painted versions of like the fire vessels that were dimensional. So you sort of had this idea that it was going off and into the distance into the woods it was very cool i mean the, you went by all this so quickly you had very little time to appreciate uh it at all so right the sea is moving uh it's just yeah there's a, there's a lot but 
even the the videos you watch now, and you're like, whoa, they went right by that. Now that you say that, you you zip right past this first scene. It's yeah. it's like a matter of well, you, uh, well, seven you, seconds. You it's to, gone. You have to get to the man blowing the horn. That's why you're like they're in a hurry to get to the horn. <laughs> <laughs> and then too i think that black light like i was saying it actually reminds me of uh peter pan's flight yes yeah uh, the the characters are kind of washed out and in extreme colors almost like pastels yeah. or something it's yeah. weird yeah and i'm not limiting it to just that scene too because we're going to talk about the the next scene with the oh there's a there's a lot of black light in that a lot <laughs> of black light. Yeah, all, yeah. all over the place so all right so we we have briefly passed <laughs> through our viking village uh, and we find ourselves <laughs> in the woods uh, in a troll forest with a, a Noken water spirit. And uh, suddenly this three headed troll pops up. This, this, of course, is, is one of the best known scenes on the ride due to the boat stopping and the turning before going backwards. And what I think is the most incredible use of fiber optic effects in any attraction. And I don't know if it's been equaled since then, but like seeing that just, I know, blew me away. So uh, we, uh, for those that have been on Elsa, uh, you know, the, the Frozen ride how what you're talking about here when the fiber optics come out is essentially where Elsa is going to push us back. Right. Because right. that troll comes out and says, push it back, push it back. Something like that. The spell comes over yeah. you and you get, you get moved backwards. You get pew, pew, pew. And it was, yeah. over, it, yeah. it, that piece was so neat because the fiber optics actually started above the troll's hands and then spread yes. out slowly and made this swirl above your boat. That kind mm -hmm. of turned at the same speed, but it was this multi-layered fiber optic thing. And as it's turning, you're kind of looking up at it, and then your boat is starting to to turn. With it was very effective to really make you think like, I, "Those trolls have cast a magic spell, and I am now right. moving." <laughs> and you're now moving. And if individuals now <sighs> complain about you know Elsa sending you into darkness, well, this was pretty much sending you to darkness. <laughs> much darkness <laughs> until you. <laughs> until you got to well there's another black light scene that goes by and yeah and, now when the ride and, opened there was a fog machine in there that would sort of right. fill the room with a low smoke and i don't think that that lasted probably into the hd versions no, that you saw it's heavily in the, the 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 video with with willard scott it's heavily yeah. focused there so they send you by the polar bears you know that's where the when they cast the spell and the surprise is you're you go past these this happy little mom and polar bear cub and then as the boat pulls you around because you're going backwards you don't see what's coming ahead there's an erect father you know <laughs> a standing father polar bear like guarding uh which is supposed to be the surprise moment one of the things is when they showed us at destination d years back Mark uh, Davis's artwork for the Snow Queen attraction, a variant of this polar bear scene was in there. So it like looked That's like right. it was literally ripped from there and dropped into the Norway ride. It's convenient. We'll just use it. 
I always thought too, going back to these trolls, they they had like a very Muppety voice, like whoever did it or whatever it sounded like. It sounded like either Muppets or uh, like lifted from Captain EO, the 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 Michael Jackson's friends. Right. I, I agree, but at least when you get thrown down this dark hallway, which is very disappointing in the Elsa attraction, the door closes on Elsa when she sends you back right. there. So you, you're going down this dark. Right. Here, at least you can see the erect, you know, polar bear standing guard the entire way. So there is something to focus your gaze. And so that would be one of my critiques in the redesign uh, where I think they failed because lighting effects are so cheap now. It would be so cheap to have anything going on in this hallway right uh swirling around you with you know a few hundred dollars of leds and the fact that there's just nothing but a black drape is like so, you know what's funny is even in the the maelstrom originally between that backwards that first backwards part and the polar bears it was designed to have yeah. rock work there and they had to cut it out for budgetary reasons and it was just like black paint it was just like painted flats until you got to the polar bear right. section um you know besides the polar bears you forgot about one other very important animatronic animal from norway oh which, boy which is the puffin there were puffins in there as well oh right oh my yeah. gosh i forgot about that uh and you know very important for norway because there even there was a shop named after the puff the puffins roost like outside puffins roost, so, yeah mm -hmm. those norwegians really love their puffins so don't it's still there isn't it the Puffins Roofs, I believe is, it is. Isn't the Puffins Roofs is still there? Yeah, yeah it is still there, man. Um, all right. So uh, that polar bear. Let's let's talk about that polar bear and all the rest of the polar bears for a minute. Um, so the sculpting of that bear and any other new figures that weren't reused from World of Motion or Spaceship Earth were done by Peter Komodi, who was the head of the sculpture shop after Blaine Gibson retired. So um, he did research to make that bear as authentic as possible. It stood nearly 10 feet tall. Um, and even though it seemed like it had a like an overly long neck and a big head, that that was actually what polar bears looked like. Um, the figure finishing was done by Helena Hutchinson, and she had to actually devise a spandex underlayer for that long neck on the bear, because uh, with the animation, they couldn't have any. Um, it moved around quite a bit. They couldn't have any like structural stuff underneath it, so it just kind of hung there. So apparently that was kind of a challenge for her to come up with some kind of material that would keep it from just like draping and looking unnatural. So she actually had to come up with this spandex solution to <laughs> sew into it to give it some form as as the bear was moving around. Um, so after we get done with our polar bears, we move into a forest section and our boat comes to an abrupt stop at the edge of a waterfall. So one of the effects that got missed probably certainly by a majority of people who rode the ride that behind you is an opening out onto World Showcase over yes. the pavilion where you could see outside and it looked like I mean there was a waterfall on the outside of the of the attraction and it you know the impression you were supposed to get is that they were going to push you out on a world showcase and you were going to fall back there and, I, and brian you're, you're right you know what's interesting too is that you and i were there a few weeks ago i looked behind me and also before we got in the attraction i was looking up at that spot from outside 
they did a horrible job blending the old rock work to the new. <laughs> it is yeah, old, they, and the, if you it, look behind you on the ride, there's a piece of plywood and other stuff just like it, holding it up. It, it's, it looks like some dad went down to the hardware store yeah. on a Saturday, bought a bag of quick crete <laughs> yep. and, and just mixed it, it with there. water and like tried to try to do a patch job instead of hiring a concrete professional. Exactly. Exactly. Dad. Oh, man. <laughs> um, so as we mentioned earlier, this is also exactly... Going back to Joe Rody, this is where you have the Yeti yell at you and send you forward again, right? It's the right, but right. I, you know what we did talk about here. Both the two things unique in this ride to any other Flume attraction that I have ever been on, and I'm this really was unique. And, and I remember reading that this was the first Walt Disney World attraction that went backwards. Now you think about the mechanics and the engineering that need to go in a Flume. We know what Disney did way back one for small world right they just bought an existing flume system and floated it through a warehouse that's that's all small world is uh it was built into the building at walt disney world but here you have a flume attraction with a lift um a a a, a drop as we'll talk about or we've already gone down one of them and two mechanisms that can catch a boat a moving boat swing it into a different direction and then reset itself it's so, pretty damn impressive. Yeah. So if if I if I understand this correctly, and I'm sure a listener will correct me if I have this wrong, the way that they did it, like I was picturing, oh, there's like a turntable and you slot into a turntable and then the turntable turns and then right, right, you right. No. There nope. are there are um uh conveyor belts, like belts underneath the water that lift up and they start turning. And then the belt catches the bottom of the boat, and that's what pushes it from the right to the left, from the left to the right, or the right to the left. So, but in what's the, interesting is it it only does it in the back of the boat and the front of the boat because then the front or the rear of the boat, depending on where you're moving, it becomes the pivot point. Right. And you also have these other little things that help shift shift it over and keep it lined up so that it's in the track for the next right. portion. So Which once it once it moves brilliant. it over, it probably bumps against something and gets gets you embedded like. It is a surprisingly kind of non-technical or a low-tech yeah. solution for what what could have been a very high-tech problem. Um, so it's brilliant, absolutely, absolutely yeah. brilliant, Abs- absolutely br- brilliant. And uh, I'd love to, uh, I'd love to go in there with the water off one day and just yeah. inspect it. <laughs> um, I, I love this area. I love this forest. I love the big waterfall that's at like the the T junction or where the the mm-hmm. fork in the road. Uh-huh. Whatever. It's such a fun area. It's just like, and I think those things are kind of missing now on certain. Th- I mean, the amount of detail just in this one section well, is is huge. And that's 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 the key through this whole ride is again that the how they just crammed so much in. Um, into each of these little vignettes it's not a long ride but each of these scenes is so memorable because they're immersive and there's just so much detail around you in little spaces uh that you don't get you know overwhelmed by anything uh by noticing the mechanics of the ride while yeah. you're on it because you're just surrounded by things there is also something I'm, I'm going to throw kind of a, I don't know if it's a bad word or not. It's not, you know, it's, it is immersive, but it is in no way realistic. Like you're, you're never like, oh, I'm really in Norway. There's, no. There is a, there is a charm to the theatricality of the presentation. 
Uh, and maybe the uh, you know yeah. the black light could maybe works it works for the the black light works for it or works against it. But like you're never there. There's something very charming about the whole the whole setup. Um, it, that it's, I think it's, it's also as realistic enduring. as living. But it's like living with the land, driving through the. You're not really in the rainforest and the prairie, but it's it has that it, feel. Yeah, but that was, that's a different level of immersion, though. I think right. you know, part I, part of the part of the. I, I keep I hate to keep using the word charm because the, that's the, what this ride was. It was very charming is that you would have these this elaborate rock work and this troll rock monster thing sending you over the falls. And that and at the same time behind them is just painted plywood. <laughs> so you had the simplicity of small world. And the original plywood land, Disneyland style dark ride elements, which were clearly budgetary in nature. And then you would have that, you know, just late 80s. We have the ability to do this amazing stuff now, <laughs> sit like resting alongside of it. When we eventually do our great movie ride episode, that's one of the things we'll talk about uh, is how you would go from these incredibly immersive well-done scenes with it with amazing animatronics effects and then you'd get to the like tarzan one which literally looked like a department store display <laughs> with just like a mannequin <laughs> swinging across a rope you can clearly see like you know it was just there were good scenes and bad scenes and and all based on budget and you know how how they could dress it and Right. That's the charm of Maelstrom was that each scene had a bit of both, right? Like, right, yeah, absolutely. Like, even when you're coming down the final drop, the you know you've just come out of this that 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 the the, the, the monsters looking at you and you're looking back, you're you're about to drop, and then it's just this painted wall that's over top of you with a little cutout you're sailing under, like. No attempted immersion on the drop at all. Like there's just <laughs> there was there was a, there was a little bit there. But to your point, is not like so. There was like this. I'm gonna call him a wood spirit. I'm sure there's some technical Norwegian name. Right. Another like little yeah. guy, little troll head. We'll just and call it, him something. Yeah. Right. It some, was just this little head with eyes, and he would kind of be there for a second and look at you, and then like drop down into the rocks, and then you would go down. Um, right. But that that little scene is. So we'd have this little guy and then uh, as you're sitting on the edge of the 28 foot drop and you would hear the song Morning Mood from Edvard Greer's Peer, uh, Peer Nant. I can't say this right. Peer Nant? Peer Gint? Okay. I, 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 you know, I was going to ask you how. I swear that... <laughs> song was in the attraction thank you for confirming because i'm like I, it's 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 such a regular song and like, right it's so interesting so that that's they it. put it in there they did they well I, again another famous norwegian thing it's and a nice little piece yeah so uh there's kind of like this as you're sitting there ready to go down if you're not freaked out by the troll stuff like there is this as brian said like this painting of like looking down a fjord and there's a mount a little mountain that kind of goes 
partially over the thing with these two. Yeah, there's a waterfall next to you, and yeah. there's these two very little nice tiny looking. figures of hikers uh, that are up there too. <laughs> um, that didn't make it like all the way through the attraction, but they were there. I think one guy even has like a he's looking through binoculars. Yeah, so it's like this very like light, airy, happy, and then. Down you go <laughs> for the second time in, in, into a literal cutout that looks like a boardwalk ride. Right. Uh, and and so I think when you hear, which we'll share in a bit, the critique of, of a Tony Baxter type uh, of, of these theme design experts who did not have as high an opinion of Maelstrom as some of the fans did. I think those are the critiques that as they kind of looked at what the ride was uh, and how it was slapped together, uh, the pieces of it that didn't work, and I guess that's their critical eye, right? Like mm -hmm. when you're when you're an when you're an artist or a perfectionist, you're looking at not the things that do work or or, or or are done right in a ride, but you're going through saying, well, what's you know, how would we fix this now? Right. And and I think they they themselves feel like they addressed most of those concerns when they redid the ride with the frozen overlay. Yeah. Uh, that it's a lot more well-rounded now in terms of design and delivery uh, than Maelstrom was, right? right? Like, am I saying that right? I, yeah, without I think so. Endorsing, uh, without endorsing the change to frozen in any way. Yeah. <laughs> it's definitely oh. the uh, modern take on what you do with that ride system. Yeah. 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 Um, now you do get dumped, you know, after your cardboard cut out there, you get dumped. What I thought was one of the best scenes, but it was the quick, one of the quickest. Uh, as I, well. I love the oil derrick. The North I mean, Sea I just yeah, love it. You, you plunge it in the North Sea. You, you've got two oil derricks in the distance on your left. Uh, there's a storm raging and you look off to your right and there's this, it's like somebody ran over to energy exchange and stole the oil platform model and stuck it into the ride. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like the same thing, but it was, it's, it's night. It's the oil platform is lit up. It's extremely and, well done. Yeah. The ships at sea around you. There's it's, it's a, a fantastic scene. The, um, the rig, the flares off the oil yes. rigs, the natural oh, yeah. gas, uh, they're burning they the ex excess. Flare, off. Yeah, yeah. Which you see in the movie later on. It's like such great detail there. Um, so Jim Mulder was the gentleman who was in charge of the special effects for, for that room and the whole rest of the attraction. Uh, and he, he was the one that actually was responsible for putting all of that together for the whole thing. Um, apparently, he had a ton of ideas on how to handle that scene. And one of the things that was considered but actually not used, and I'm going to bust a myth here, um, mm -hmm. There was an idea used to um, an idea to use a Tesla coil to make real lightning in that room. Um, <laughs> he actually found someone. I've yeah, heard this. So he actually found someone in California who uh, was an expert on making artificial lightning. They set up a, uh, a building uh, at WED, like, I guess next to where they were like working on the Star Tours simulator mockups. And the guy brought in a Tesla coil uh, about 10 foot high with this like giant metal ball in it. And there's actually a photo in one of the Imagineering books that I'll we'll put in the liner notes so you can actually see this thing at work. And uh, they invited people in uh, and it would shoot out a, a 15 foot bolt of lightning 
uh, that would go into wow. like a receptacle in the corner of the room. If you've ever seen a Tesla coil, there's basically like a negative anode. You know, I, I think the top of it is it's either positive or negative, And then you have a, another thing out for the lightning to go to uh, or the, the big giant spark. And so um, it was made an enormous bang. It was like super impressive. Having one of those things with water is exceedingly dangerous and they wouldn't be I, I able to guess that one. Yeah, <laughs> they wouldn't be able to necessarily control where it went and you'd end up electrocuting people. So they did not actually ever install that in it. And they used uh, other kinds of special effects stuff for that instead. <laughs> um, the oil rig, the actually, it's funny you said that, um, Todd, about the oil rig and it looking like it came out of energy exchange. That yeah. was actually one of the few um, pieces that they actually jobbed out to somebody. Really? Um, they hired a oh. model company based out of Houston, who I guess probably makes models of oil rigs, or maybe <laughs> did make the one in the Ener energy exchange to actually uh, create that for them. Uh, they then assembled it on real concrete legs that they actually poured in place in Florida wow. and, and uh, put that model on top of it. So. Uh, that's why it was so good. Interesting. And that scene lasts five seconds. Yeah, like, no, you go through so quick. You go through very fast. You splash so, so quick, and then boom, you're out of there and into what I think is one of the loveliest spots that was ever designed and built. I, yes. It, you know what it is? It's all. As you walk through World Showcase, there are there are different spots in France and Canada and Italy where you can look at these <clears throat> little designs, uh, little villages, little scenes that you wish you could be in, mm -hmm. but they're to set the scene. They're 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 not reachable. This one, they drop you off in there. And in the old days, uh, I don't know how long the film was. What, three, four minutes, maybe the, the, the Norway film? Yeah, I think it was eight. Was it eight? I think it was eight, if I recall correctly. So they would fill the, the village, the unload area, and you'd have to wait there for the doors to the theater to open. Then you sat in the theater to watch a, a we'll say, eight minute film on Norway as it existed in 1988. And that's one of the critiques of the ride is that the, you know, you've come through this filling thrilling thing. You've come down this, 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 this hill and splashed into the North sea and gotten off in this picturesque village. And then it, it is, it's like they're holding you hostage for the timeshare <laughs> pitch. Like it's, you're, 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 you've now, you've experienced the joy. You've now got to pay for your vacation uh, by, you know, I, I just remember we would get off that ride. And as the years went on, it did become kind of a thing to try to be the first in line to get in the theater so you could follow the exiting people out through the theater and skip the film. Yep. Right? And and uh, and eventually they gave up on it all together and would just run the film continuously with the doors open. Uh, and then they just stopped running the film altogether uh, <laughs> at the very end. I mean, it was, uh, so I, I looked it up, Brian. It was nine minutes. I'm actually going back to my own oh. book that I wrote. So I, I 
Maybe I'll read to you what I get, what I wrote. There back it goes, in. JT. Mark it down. And the how long it took Chad to mention he wrote a book. Uh, it's it's like every four or five episodes. No, no it's not. I'm not using it. WDW made simples. Todd bomb. It's a Todd bomb. Yeah. I'm using my own tonight. This is what I wrote way back. A Todd bomb of knowledge on us. Maelstrom is the crowd grabber here. Passengers are seated in a Viking boat that carries them through a very abbreviated history of Norway. There are few surprises, one being an unexpected meeting with some trolls. After debarking, we'll view a short film about the Norwegian people. See it once and skip it the next time. Wow. <laughs> I told you, I was very Ouch. much to the point. If the line for this ride extends outside the building, you may want to come back later. Um, a high seas Viking adventure is how Disney likes to subtitle this ride, although in my book it fell, falls short of an adventure. While the ride is well-designed and enjoyable, it is too fast-paced. It moves so quickly your brain has little time to register what you're seeing and is way too short. First-time visitors will find themselves wanting to go back again to see what they missed. Disney Imagineers have come up with an incredible weaving system, or should I say herding system, in queue areas, and at times it can be thoroughly deceiving. 14 minutes, 5-minute ride, 9-minute movie. And I do say, if you prefer not to see, you have enough time to walk through the theater and exit before the film begins there's enough walking room in the front of the first row wow yeah and it's again experience has changed we talk about going to the parks now and just enjoying yeah. the park oh, yeah. environs and not getting on right now i'd love to sit and watch the movie again yeah. you know i'll just, take it i'll take 15 uh, nine minutes but but at a time when you were trying to maximize your day Absolutely. and get on all the rides and that ride did tend to have longer lines. Yes. Uh, it just didn't move as many people uh, as fast as it went uh, because of probably because of the hurting at the back of it and the nine minute <laughs> movie. Yeah. Uh, it just didn't seem to move people as fast. And so the lines were always out the door and into the pavilion, sometimes stretching out to World Showcase. Yeah. Uh, and, and uh, it, you know, it, it became a thing that, I mean, it was something we always used a fast pass for. Like mm -hmm. you got a fast pass for Maelstrom and then we planned the rest of World Showcase around when our return time for, for, for Maelstrom was. Because it was just always, you know, 40 minutes, an hour, an hour and a half. It just always seemed like a really long line because the queue inside was so short. Um, there was, it was not a Is long queue area. Is that the only ride in World Showcase except Mexico? They were the only two. Uh, I mean, I, you, you count uh, you count American Adventure as an attraction, uh, but but in terms of rides, they were the only two until they added Remy. Yep, um, and that's only been the past few yeah. months. I'm telling, if you start on the uh, the Canada side, you go around and you're a kid. Oh, you're dying by the time you gotta it, ride that thing. Yeah, it it it, and uh, you know, there's, I I, I don't want to give anyone the impression. I mean, I loved Maelstrom, and I was very upset oh, yeah, when I they closed too. it, and and the Frozen being introduced to to World Showcase was a harbinger of things to come, and a thing that Epcot. I don't even want to call us purists because. I accepted a lot of the changes they made to Epcot in the 90s and even the early 2000s, the things that they did update and change. Uh, but this was a rapid departure from kind of what their thing had been over there, which was making rides that weren't specific to any kind of an intellectual property. And or when they did introduce intellectual properties, 
I mean, if you want to consider Eleanor Bill Nye an intellectual property or the, uh, even Nemo, uh, they introduced them in a way that seemed to work with the, 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 the way, it, you know, the way Epcot was intended. I've always said Nemo could work fine if Nemo was teaching you about the seas, uh, which is perfectly suited for a fish to do. Um, but so there was a lot of upset about that uh, and, and pushback about that when it was announced that that was the change that was coming. But I don't think as it was for some people, it was about Maelstrom. And for a lot of people, it was about what it portended for the rest of Epcot that was coming. And, uh, you know, it was like the dam had been broken and they were right, you know, because that's exactly the, 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 the place that Epcot's headed. But to your point, JT, uh, you know, there's a lot of those defenders who are like, well, I always loved Epcot as a kid. Well, I, I understand, but we're a unique breed of people. Uh, most of these people taking their kids back there, you know, Disney responds to complaints. And a lot of those complaints were that, man, World Showcase was a killer for kids. Like I hated <laughs> just, it. Yeah. I hated it. You know, I was miserable. I could not stand in another theater and watch another stupid movie again at 12 years old. It just was, wasn't. And then once you hit that ride, you're like, thank God, something to and, do and not stand. And put yourself in a in a 14 like year old position and it's 1995 and a, and a boat ride away is the Tower of Terror and the Rock and Roller Coaster and that's why Indiana Jones stunt show and the, or you can be you know the wonders of China you know and <laughs> it was you're just, horrible you're, it was you're horrible. standing there and you're like yeah it, it, I, and I get that like I totally get that different guests are looking for different things um, I think the the counter argument is for people like me I think that you can have stuff for all of us you know <laughs> so a, Go ahead. Yeah. What I think is interesting here, and this is probably beyond the scope of Maelstrom, but like, you know, the audience intend the audience intended for Epcot at that time was largely adult. They figured this is where adults are going to go. Conventioneers, older people, certainly people, you know, with older children. But it was, you know, they left small kids completely out of the equation when they were putting they were putting together a World's Fair audience. And and that's apparent in our slides from the first, you know, up until they started doing the Epcot 90s stuff. I mean, Epcot was loaded with adults. Right. For a time, it worked. And then I think what they quickly discovered is once they had transformed uh, Walt Disney World from a one day or a two day destination into a multiple day destination, the families all showed up as Disney became more popular you know, as certainly as you got into the mid 90s, there were tons of families and tons of kids showing up there, which forced them to do things like Kid Cot to give kids actual activities to do at Epcot. Because you're right, it was boring for, for a small child. To, even to this day, it's like when I took my own, you know, three and four year olds there, there was very little for them to do. And and I there's a there's a playground. How that's right. the you spend one hundred dollars a day to exactly. use a playground. <laughs> And Rolly Crump built a splash pad. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Kids get hot. Let them cool off. And it is fascinating. I think 
in the long term, like a lot of us can decry this this changeover of Epcot becoming and all of the parks becoming more like the Magic Kingdom. But I think it is fascinating when you look at attendance figures, you know, the Magic Kingdom pulls in 20 million people a year. The other parks are doing between nine and 13 and they flip flop back and forth depending on who opened a new attraction. It's like one year Animal Kingdom opens up suddenly, then there's more people there. And then, you know, Hollywood Studios opens an attraction, then there's more people. I think a question that you could ask, and I think the parks are asking themselves, why can't we do Magic Kingdom style numbers at all of these other parks? What is that barrier that is keeping 20 million people from going evenly to all four of the parks. And I I think part of the nut that they are trying to crack is like, what is that thing that works at the Magic Kingdom? And how do we bring that into all of our other parks? And the answer for now might be IP. It's IP and it's 50 years of memories and stuff, right? Yeah. You've got generations coming back now. You know, if my grandparents were around, it'd be four generations. And I'm sure there's families where four generations are going. Yeah. Uh, and you 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 lose a decade, you almost lose a generation with each individual park uh, and memories. And, you know, each park has its own attraction, its own pull. And I agree with you. I think that they're re- they're reinventing every single park. We've we've watched two of these parks reinvent themselves over the past 20 years, completely reinvent themselves. The, studio, the only reason they call Hollywood Studios is because they don't know what else to call it. <laughs> let's be honest it's not a studio park it is an entertainment location that's what it is it's you know it's it it should be disney's entertainment annex you know or i I know we're i know we're off path a little bit but if you remember they were going to change the name to hollywood adventure right um but again that that assumes a film and and what you're seeing happen is that mickey's runaway railway the only reason it has a film connotation with it now is because crap we have it in chinese you know grumman's chinese theater what are we gonna do we have to give it um i hate that you know ride. everything else is, is <laughs> just, what's that i've been on that ride like 10 times i can't stand that ride i'm like oh this ride every time i'm on it i just looking for elements of great movie ride that used to be there that used to be it which room <laughs> that's the only reason he it keeps is. going back, keep going back to see, this used to be the gangster <laughs> right. scene here here's a here and it's just but I mean, everything of that about the movies is is essentially, you know, the last vestige of it is probably Indiana, Indiana Jones Stunt Spectacular, which hopefully they'll just let that rest in peace someday. Um, but yeah, I, I agree. So, well, um, we weren't the only ones, uh, you know, who, who were upset by Maelstrom closing. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were a lot mm-hmm. of folks and... You know, we won't be the last. Of, we were not the last, <laughs> but I've alluded several times to Tony Baxter. Uh, you know, a lot of people regarded him as uh, one of the Imagineers who was the last keeper of the flame. He fought to save the treehouse in Disneyland by turning it into Tarzan's. He's fought to save the submarines that were going to go in Disneyland uh, by turning them into the Finding Nemo subs. Uh, you know, and. Disneyland Paris, uh, widely regarded as the most beautiful of the Disney parks, of certainly of the castle parks. 
was totally his baby and his influence. So very popular with the fans and fans, you know, he's a guy that would admit that as the original designer of the imagination attraction, that what they do today doesn't really work. And uh, he was always honest in his critiques of marquee attraction in California, Indiana Jones uh, in Disneyland and which became dinosaur in 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 animal kingdom uh you know he just rave reviews big thunder mountain over his 30 40 year career with imagineering so he was on the season pass podcast when the maelstrom closure and replacement with frozen was announced and i think it's worth uh playing a couple minutes of his commentary on that uh so that we can chat about it you know like everything there was a tremendous like, oh, my God, they're tearing out my favorite attraction. So last year uh, we were down there, I think, around IAPA. Or was it before that? I think it might have been August. And one of my big points was to go on the Maelstrom ride to make my final judgment. I had nothing to do with this decision, but I really want I'd read all this feed, you know, the uh, what do you call it? The resistance. And I said, I'm going to go on that ride and really evaluate what are we losing here. <laughs> I can already see where Yeah, yeah, this is. And <laughs> we get in the queue line, which is like between two plywood walls and a carpet on the floor and these dingy. See, everybody, you can stop lights. being mad at me yeah. now. I'm just saying. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And we and the turn mural, the corner right. and this like uh, <laughs> tired girl is there. It so, was great for its time, but it yeah. was a corporately sponsored um project that was had messages to get across <laughs> in drilling oil out of the North Sea and so forth and so Did forth. Did you stay for the post show? Did you watch the movie? I, I don't even know if they were still running it. Doors <laughs> were, I thought we had to have, there was a the usual thing we did, which was on your mark, get set, go. And you raced as the doors opened. <laughs> to get before out before the, the movie started. started. <laughs> well, I mean, a, you know, a, a, a pre-show film is great because you're in boring time of waiting to go on a ride. So going through a pre-show, go, well, this is nice. We get six or seven minutes of mild entertainment before we get on the ride. But after you've had the ride and you've gone down the splashdown, and now you're supposed to stay there for another <laughs> 10 minutes watching, that just, that never worked. Whether the content might've been good, bad, or indifferent, but nobody wants to do that. So yeah, people would race through that theater. So what Michelle's doing with it is great. I mean, it's going to be slightly longer um, and uh, exquisite. And he's working really hard, I think. And, and it's, in my opinion, it's really a great thing to make it the Norway pavilion, not the frozen pavilion. Um, you know, even, you know, going head to head with a lot of people that want, oh, you want the, you know, the cartoony Arendelle yeah. things out there. And they're not doing that. It's going to be the Norway Pavilion. As well as it should be. It's Epcot. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and it's Epcot. You yeah. know, like I said, I, I think Michelle gets that. And yet I think this ride will be a great ride. It's going to be, um, you know, live up to what special effects can do now and Good. animation. And, um, you know, and like I said, it, it won't have that odd, you know, going into a movie after the... <laughs> Well, that might surprise a few people, wouldn't you think, Hal? <laughs> yeah, I would, you know, like I said, he worked very hard at Disneyland to save as many attractions as he can, but uh, not not so much at Walt Disney World. <laughs> no, no, I mean, it just, you know, he, his critiques are, you know, as with everything with Tony, they're, they're, they're well stated. I mean, right. he's got his reasons for why he thought it was the right time to, to change it and... Um, 
you know, I don't know that he necessarily in that commentary endorsed the introduction of intellectual property into Epcot, but you know, he's certainly recognizes it's an idea to, or it's a, it's an avenue to improve dated attractions. Right. And I, I think, you know, I think that team, given the restrictions of the ride system and the building, you know, the, the best solution probably would have been knock it all down, start over from scratch. But, you know, with the, with the money that they had available, you know, I think they did a hell of a job converting over. You know, they fixed some of the issues, you know, that the ride had. Um, they certainly made the best out of what was available and kind of managed to work it in story wise. And there are some there are truly some beautiful sections of that ride. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And the, I mean, the whole queue, I mean, not not that the, the fishing village, you know, was obviously gorgeous. And uh, what they've done to reproduce kind of the the outskirts of Arendelle uh, as you're waiting to go on now is, is equally as well done. It It is really the queue yeah. is very nice. Yeah. Uh, and you get to spend so much time in it. Yes, they, did, they, do. <laughs> they did slow it down, too. You know, there's definitely the ride is a little bit of slower pace. It feels longer because of it, that little bit of extension they were give be able to yeah. give it through the You know, basically you're going through where the old mural was. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, and the movie theater down. scene, yeah, yeah, right, and and the theater and everything. So, I I really do agree with Tony. I mean, people, I Brian, you're right. I mean, people are going to say, no way, he's completely wrong. It should have always stayed. Nothing here has to stay forever, and nothing except Peter Pan's flight, except <laughs> Peter Pan and Carousel Progress. Right, yeah. it's a small world. There's a few things that are just never going to go. But going back to what Hal was talking about, getting I, you know, getting IP, finding the identity of these parks, I don't believe that if you if you left Maelstrom the way it was, and even to that little inner, you know, injection of Donald Duck and the three caballeros that they did into uh, Mexico, if you didn't do that, I don't think you'd be getting to where you are needing to be in Epcot today. It did pave the way for Remy. It did pave the way for larger expansion, uh, you know, that we're going to be going through. That park has to change. And yeah, it was it was the tipping point for IP and it was the tipping point for changing the identity of the park. It can't be Epcot forever. The World's Fair, people are like, rebuild the World's Fair in 1964. No, it's not going to happen. It's over. It's done. You can send me hate mail for it. But... I, I firmly believe it it was the right thing to do. I love the ride. I, there's no doubt I loved it. But in the end, there were, you know, there are better things that you can do when you're a company to bring in the people. Well, and I've, you know, as a as a fan of old Epcot, uh, you know, I, we I go to Epcot Food and Wine with my wife and I'm like, do you want to go on that ride? And she's like, no, I've been on the ride a million times. I don't need to go out ride. I don't need to ride on that again. And I'm like, <laughs> right. oh, you're killing me. Um, <laughs> cause like, you want to go on the land? No, I don't want to go on that. I've been on that already. I mean, yeah. And I always go on the, I'm with you. I love the old stuff and I'll always go on the land, but I mean, there, there's an old, I mean, and that goes back to that old story of Walt and the Jungle Cruise of like, where he overheard the lady, like he's walking, you know, standing outside of the Jungle Cruise, smoking a cigarette, like listening to what people say. And he heard a person say, no, I don't want to go on that ride. It's like, well, I've already been on that. And then he's like, oh, we need to go in and start plussing these rides and like add things. So that way it's not always yeah. the same ride for years and years and years. And unfortunately, Epcot had become completely stagnant 
and still Absolutely. is to a yeah. large extent. And, and you know, Brian and I were on the new Jungle Cruise. Oh. Well, actually, we turned into Jingle overnight from one day to the next. But and it was great to see the new elements. I think they were well done. It, and, and you're absolutely right. It does bring people back. What could you have done to that Norway pavilion or the, the Maelstrom, you know, in the space that they had? Yeah, yeah, right. right. That's about it. Like, what are you going to do? Spend the money in upgrading the animatronics? No kid and nobody slowed knew the water down. So send me the hate mail. Uh, you can, but I think it was, I think Baxter's on point. And, and the popular theory, I mean, you talk to enough people who, who were in Imagineering at the time or in park operations was that, you know, Epcot's big update because it, there was a lot of investment at, at the, at the, you know, eight to 10 year mark. Cause they added Maelstrom and, wonders of life and you know they were working they did interventions in epcot 94 and all that but you got to 1998 and animal kingdom opened and animal kingdom was a nine to five park that was only half complete and needed you know when you're finished maelstrom you're finished maelstrom you have to refill the hydraulic fluid in your in your animatronics and and make sure the water levels are right but they keep running at animal kingdom your animals need to eat and sleep and be cared for every day and uh and they're your attraction over there and you know the 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 popular discussion uh, i'm sure defunct land will make a four-hour video that says we're wrong but <laughs> that all the money that would have been invested in epcot's third act really because i'll consider the investment of the late 80s and early 90s as Epcot's second act, that Epcot's third act never happened uh, because all the money was being spent on trying to fix Animal Kingdom uh, and and continuing to build and invest over there because the park didn't work very well for the first 10 years that it was operating. And they had to add a roller coaster and had to add Camp Mini Mickey and, all you know, the the acrobatic show and everything else to because it the the like I said the park just didn't work that well and and uh you know I, that that was the hallmark of what they were building in the late 90s and you know they did Disney's California Adventure is the most expensive park they've ever built cuz they've put a billion dollars into it three different times to try to get it right <laughs> and you know they're on their third their third makeover of a park that's only 20 years old and and you know, with with Animal Kingdom, it's the same thing. There was initial investment and then this massive investment of the last 10 years to try to fix it once and for all. And, you know, now it's a park that's actually open after dark and open when it rains. I mean, attractions all used to close when it <laughs> rained and, you know, it was a mess. Yeah. Um, which is why we won't do an Animal Kingdom show for an awful long time. <laughs> but uh yeah, so so that's the theory as to why Epcot became stagnant. Uh, I mean, I get. I mean, Maelstrom was the first, right? I mean, I guess we'd say it was the first IP casualty, though. Nemo. Yeah, I yeah, was. yeah. I guess it was. That was before it. Um, I feel like people were. I mean, people were upset, but they were less upset because it at least made sense that cartoon fish would go into the fish attraction um well yeah and frozen really isn't 
I mean Norway. <laughs> it's not Norwegian. Yeah, yeah it's just yeah. like a, they they had took. Oh, there's snow. Where can we put Elsa? She's not going to well, China. Uh, Let's put her here. And you know that's also where the anger. Yes. And I don't have another word for it. The anger of fans like ours, the people who are listening to this show, who did love smart Epcot, uh, innovative Epcot. Uh, even 90s Epcot as they tried to stick with the smart themes but keep them extreme. I mean, Ellen and Bill Nye are still trying to teach you about energy in a less boring way than the original energy attraction. And well, Even t- Test Track didn't make them as mad or Mission Space, but... Well, no, but what happened with this was, I mean, Disney was feeding you PR. They'd gotten to that point where they were feeding you magic lines all the time to justify what they were doing instead of simply just saying we're adding Frozen and not attempting to attach some kind of BS explanation <laughs> as to how it really fits with Epcot and World Showcases. I mean, that's when when they start to insult you. That's when people really, when it moves from being upset to, to anger. And so I get the anger because I roll my eyes when those types of conversations have don't justify it to me you're putting remy or you're putting this ride in here because you want to and you own the theme park (laughs) i don't need a thematic explanation from you as to why it's okay or it's in walt's vision or it's in the vision of epcot or anything it's insulting and i would much rather not be insulted by someone i'm giving 140 dollars a day to it's like the uh, the what's the Guardians of the Galaxy reason at Epcot because uh, what's his name went there in the eighties and that's that's why I mean it's like <laughs> right. they, it's like just just say you want to put a spacey themed ride over well, yeah, there yeah we want we yeah. want to add Guardians of the Galaxy we want to bring it to the to the, the Florida parks and that's the only one we, we think can. this is a perfect spot for it you know that's that's all I mean just. That's what I want to stop. And it's just not going to stop. It only gets worse because now they have all these social media outlets where they do these little three minute videos where they're, you know, we're bringing the magic. They're trying to convince the they're trying to convince the unconvinced. And and yeah, see, the thing is, the Zandarians are building like a, <laughs> a world showcase pavilion, but in future world for their planet it's, because they're sharing their planet. But I they just, didn't put it in World Showcase. Don't, don't go Avatar on me, please. Remember <laughs> that whole the thing. One, I hope the, the World Showcase that they build has the Switzerland pavilion with the Matterhorn ride, the, the Alps ride there, <laughs> so that we can ride it and eat in the fondue restaurant that we should have. I want the Rhine River cruise. That's The Rhine River cruise oh, in Germany great. would be good. I mean, listen, if the trend here is... They're going to start dropping rides in some of these other countries that don't have them like they did with France. I'm all yeah. for it. Yep. You know, I am all for a Pinocchio ride in Germany. Mary Poppins. Yeah. You know, uh, what are we putting in Japan? Godzilla. <laughs> a Godzilla ride. A Godzilla ride would be fantastic. Do we own him? Wait, is he Fox? They can buy him. They're Disney. They can buy him. They, they, they want. can rent that. Yeah. And the only reason he's coming here is because he destroyed it back in the 60s. He's, yeah, he's back. So. Right. <laughs> I Yeah. So, I, I mean, I think that there's a path forward to them uh, for them that they could do. By the way, Pinocchio German or is he Italian? He, now I'm, Geppetto sounds Italian, right? Like, I think it's the Italy pavilion. <laughs> yes, he just got yes, all this, this armchair. No, you can keep it in there. Yeah. Like, I, you know. Pinocchio was Italian. 
Yeah, so Pinocchio could go in the Italian pavilion and Snow White can go in the German. But she's already got something. And looking at the positive here, I will say, I mean, not saying they would have, I mean, they very well could have scrapped the whole ride, too. At least they kept some form of it. I mean, that's that's, true. They just could have shuttered it and called it a day and... Like they like they could have turned it into a frozen meet and greet like they did with the Snow White ride in in the Magic Kingdom. I mean, it's... Speaking of that pavilion, if you guys remember, I don't, this is not 25 years, but they were trying to shove Elsa everywhere around there before the ride showed up. I remember going one year and she was in the gift shop area that has like the perfume and it was a yeah. line out to, you know, yeah. the next the, country. And they were like, the, they had the, a rush because they never assumed that. Yeah. Well, they didn't know, yeah. Now it's like there's there's eight doors and, and you know, it's w- well done. But yeah, this was a it was this problem they couldn't fix. Yeah, it, that was a an unprecedented problem for them. Um, and again, they 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 made the decision in response to a blockbuster movie, and they hadn't had a blockbuster movie in a while. Yep. You know, they they'd gotten into the routine of releasing these animated films, and they would do fine, and they'd market them and be able to sell toys and it, but. You know, the, 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 the last hit before that, I think was stitch, which they were very caught off guard by Lilo and stitch (laughs) catching on the way that it did. And stitch became a big thing in the parks for a while. And everything was stitch this and stitch that it's, it's, it's weird. I think sometimes for people my age to see how much stitch is still around because it didn't seem that big a deal to me at the time, but you know, there was a huge Lilo and Stitch thing right. uh, when 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 it happened and and their next real big success from an animated feature in the that, that melded with the parks was Frozen. Yeah, it, it not and, just a success, but something that was actually in the zeitgeist of American yeah. culture. I mean, that's the like uh, all the movies yeah. did well, like all of them were popular. Right. But there was something about that particular movie that really number one hit song. Right. And, and it was Del- everywhere. <laughs> It touched a nerve. It spoke to everyone. It really, uh, it, something about it worked. Uh, and they, I don't believe they'll be able to replicate that success no matter what they do. Cause it was just one of those, it no. was the right movie at the right time for the right audience. And it went huge. And, and it's, you know, the only twice can you really think of where they, you know, when Walt was doing the films, we, we like to think of them all as classics and successes, but you know, at the time, you know, Cinderella did better than Sleeping Beauty and Pinocchio did better than this one. And Dumbo wasn't so popular. And this one, uh, they weren't all, you know, home runs. They're 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 iconic now and and part of the lexicon. But uh, back then, you know, there were hits and there were misses or hits. And, you know, to use Michael Eisner's terminology, there were doubles and triples and there were some home runs in there. But, you know, we lived through. Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, uh, Lion King, Aladdin. Like, you know, you couldn't get bigger than those four in a row. Um, And, you know, and then you started to, you know, you get Pocahontas and then you start inching towards, you know, you eventually end up with what was the treasure planet and some other thing. You know, you end, (laughs) yeah, you end up with, uh, with lesser. You know, sorry, sorry, just, Treasure Planet fans. Uh, well, I mean, I, I not to upset Tammy Tucky, but you start to get into Hercules and and some of these uh, that just don't have the staying power, right? That those original Hunchback. four or five did, yeah, Hunchback. They, 
like I said, it's, I, I don't want to call it a decline, just less staying power. Yeah, there was, that was a double, uh, you know. <laughs> you know, well, they, well, they they were all home runs at the time. Uh, they just weren't, you know, they, those guys didn't put together Hall of Fame careers. Let's put it that way. That's a good way to put it, because there are there are certainly a lot of Disney Pixar films that were effective at their time. There are fewer that stand the test of time and 10, 20, 30 years still re- like cars still popular, right. will always be popular. You know, Wreck-It Ralph was huge when it came out. You don't see people talking about that movie. No, the really same thing anymore. With like Soul and Inside Out. They're just not having the staying power. They don't have that. Like, it's not right. a toy story. Some way they get into society differently. And I loved Inside Out, but I never want to see that movie again because that was way too emotional. Like, yes. I just don't, right. I don't want to do that anymore. <laughs> it was wonderful, but... I don't need that pain like more than one time. <laughs> well, I don't know a lot of people who watch Bambi over and over again because <laughs> that's true. You know, it's, it's a traumatic movie. <laughs> you know, who's watching old Yeller every year? We do every year at Christmas Day. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I think I think that's how we have to refer to them now that there's you know, we'll do the ball player analogy and there are players out there that can have two or three big home run seasons and then kind of, you know, they were always remembered as, hey, they were good players. But, you know, once they retire from playing ball, you just don't hear from them very often. And then there are Hall of Famers, you know, and and you're right. Th- those, you know, the the those those big four and, um you know, the Toy Story movies and those are the Hall of Famers. Those are the ones that that stick around. And then there's the rescuers and Bugs Life, uh, you know, even. But well, <laughs> Bugs Life is a good. Yeah, you don't you don't see a lot of Bugs. Life, although Flick was in Animal Kingdom for an awful long time doing meet and greets. Uh, they still have the, the movie under the tree. They do still have the movie under the tree, but that's because they just, what else are they going to put under a tree? (laughs) It works. Yeah. Oh, well. It's Animal Kingdom. They're too busy fixing the rest of it to put any money into the little bits that do work, you know. Well, it is tough to be a bug. Uh, Should we get back to Maelstrom for a moment? I think we did. We should. We should. This has been a digression, uh, but we hope you've enjoyed it. You know, it's. So I, I do want to get back to the fishing village for a little bit uh, yeah. be, because we were we were all talking about, uh, you know, how lovely it was. And uh, Paul told me actually how he put that together, basically went through books and magazines and found little bits and pieces of houses that he thought were cool. And he just modeled it out. And <laughs> that's how that little village was made. Just a wow. guy sitting down, putting stuff together in a model form and like. That looks nice. And off it ran. And then we go into the movie theater, as we alluded to several times. And uh, I I know you're a film buff, Todd. Do you know who the director of that Norway film was by any chance? Or maybe uh, what other films he might have done? If you don't know the I, name, he did a couple of other films for Epcot. There I is a pattern. Probably, Could you- probably knew this at one time. And I'm going to guess it was somebody who did this. Was it the C's that this yes. person did as well? Yes. Yes. Okay. He did the C's. Oh, my goodness. Now I'm racking my brain on who it was. Because the, 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 the cinematic quality of both of them are very quick 
you know, like when, when, when the young boy is walking with his hand or he's gazing up at the, at the, at the Viking ship and it quickly flashes to the other view. Right. And, and right. You, you think about the seas where it's lightning strikes and then the water. And I, 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 I know it and I don't. So I'm going to let you. The The director's name is Paul Gerber. Besides right, yes. uh, the seas pre-show film for the living seas. He also did symbiosis. Oh, there we go. Per- yeah. That makes so sense. that's, and even though people and, ran through this movie, I, I think it was a wonderful little film. I mean, as you talked about this good. whole this whole setup where they're in the the ship museum and the little kid is like they're talking about the heritage of, Nor- you know, of being Norwegian. And like the little mm-hmm. kid goes like he's reaching out for the ship. And then they do this cut from the boat in the uh, the boat in the museum to like a boat, an actual boat full of Vikings, like on a voyage uh, with fire going in the boat and it's raining outside and they cut back and forth a couple of times. And there's this very metallic percussive sound on the cuts that kind of like makes you jump Um, is very powerful. And then the storm is going on and then all of a sudden it's modern day and they pan up from what you think is the storm in the old Viking ship and it's the oil rig like burning off all the gas that's that's coming up from the oil drilling process and it was really really a neat little film uh, let's see ballerinas I remember the ballerinas you know there were scientists right computer scientists yep. so they showed modern Norway they showed a parade I think for the would it be the king and queen, I guess, and the kids out on the uh, out on the balcony there? Um, That's right. Yep. I, I suppose those kids probably by the time the film finished running, they were probably all adults. <laughs> they were. They ran the country. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I always I always liked some of the smaller scenes, too, like the dad who's like painting the house and the kids are playing around him like he's falling asleep. Um, so there were, you know, there were big scenes in it and there were smaller scenes in it too and i mean the 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 film was supposed to want make you want to visit norway and as soon as you stepped out of there there was a norway travel desk that was happy to book your trip uh if you chose to avail yourselves of their services i mean that was the kind of the justification of norway's involvement in the production or the, the construction of the pavilion was they wanted to promote uh, they wanted to promote you to come there. How, yeah. many, how many cruises and vacations do you think they booked over the years? I was just Actually, thinking that. How many people did they get? It was very successful. Oh, um, really? Yeah. 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 Um, hang on one second. Because, because it was an adult park. You know, yeah. you had people of world-traveled uh, aspirations, and uh, they would come and see Paul Gerber's film. And say, hey, I want to go there. By the way, Hal forgot to mention that Paul Gerber, the director of the films in Epcot, was Marty Sklar's brother-in-law. So this is this is from a from an article uh, by Jim Corcus. He says that uh, in the first full year of operation ending in 1989, 5.7 million guests rode Maelstrom. There were 89 conferences held in the Norway Club, which is the VIP conference area above the attraction, which we got to go eat dinner at. Yeah, we were there. When we did the progressive dinner at D23. Um, The shop and food locations 
sold more than $10.7 million worth of items. And in 1990, it was nearly as profitable as it was in 1989. According to this article, in the first year that the pavilion was open, there were 150 requests per week from guests interested in traveling to Norway. And they said, well, there you go. According, one source claimed that during the first year of operation, tourism to Norway increased by 500 to 700 percent from the previous year. So it was right. very effective in getting people to go to Norway. It made Norway look beautiful. And and we do know from uh, the the stories written after Frozen the Disney that the travel to Norway actually increased after the Frozen movie came out and they tied it to it that there were, you know, like families at that time planning trips to Norway, even though Norway is not Arendelle. Right. Well, <laughs> so. even Disney set up tour packages, I think, through their Disney yes, Adventures company. Right? Adventures by mm-hmm. Disney. They they did all Scandinavian package, uh, you know, Frozen themed. Uh, that they pitched to people. So for, you know, like 15 grand, you could take your kids over to Norway and let them see the Scandinavian lifestyle. Build snowmen and have them come to life. And <laughs> Do you think a lot of people get off of uh, like Expedition Everest and say, hey, let's go to the Himalayas, you know, like, <laughs> is there a tour desk around here somewhere? I'd really like for my train to be ripped out from underneath me uh, when I'm traveling. I want that, that to happen in real life. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I'd love to find an abandoned base station. Uh, and ride the train. And and climb a mountain. That's you know, so Brian, I think you're, you're right. As like, as we move from, you know, intellectual to intellectual property, you know, Epcot is going to continue to morph and change to, to meet the needs of this new modern audience. You know, that's, that's kind of been redefined over the course of time, but it doesn't take away. I think the, the maelstrom that we experienced and we love and continue to love in our hearts and our minds and our memories. Um, because even though it was flawed at the time, it was pretty great. And it was certainly one of the only things there <laughs> for you to enjoy if you didn't want to just watch a movie. I mean, it was it, it it was the most exciting thing in World Showcase. I couldn't go backwards anywhere else. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think it certainly did give you uh you know the moderate thrills that epcot demanded uh and and i think moderate thrills are what tends to work really well there and which is i think a testament to why soren is so popular you know not and mission space is not (laughs) you know there is a there is an acceptable level of thrill that worked you know in the 90s 2000s epcot and and i think you know maelstrom hit that sweet spot between pleasant boat ride and just enough thrill to make it exciting, but not too much that you, you know, threw up your expensive lunch from, you know, your fettuccine Alfredo uh, from <laughs> next door. Well, how thank you for doing that research and, and uh, bringing this together. I mean, like you said, there's a lot to talk about, about the pavilion in itself. Um, you know, maybe what we can do is we can do a world showcase episode one or two where we or probably two or three where we, just touch base on some of the creation behind a lot of these pavilions. 
Brian, uh, we have some retro magic news to talk about, too. We have, uh, for those listeners that may not have been part of our reveal or uh, not finding us on Twitter or any of the socials, we have a, a list of names that have been confirmed coming to Retro Magic, and we should let listeners know how their donation can uh, land them entrance to this uh, wonderful event that we are uh, working so hard to put together coming April 24th, 2022. Yeah, we'll be holding that in Florida. You can find all of the details at retromagic.org. That'll give you the full list because it continues to evolve of Imagineers and creators and uh, personalities who were involved in, in the creation of our favorite parks 50 years ago and over the last 50 years. Uh, so head over to retromagic.org, check out the, the list and the details on how you can get yourself a ticket and where it's going to be. Um, and, uh, if you have questions, just shoot them our way. We love to talk about retro magic. It's going to be a lot of fun. Absolutely. We're looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to it. And, um, how any new, uh, designs well todd we do have a couple of of new designs in the uh in the shop and certainly we'll be working on some more um for jt especially because i know he's a big fan he he got us all hooked on that united states steel uh little sh commercial for uh for their involvement in building the uh the contemporary resort and you know the slide in like a chest of drawers you know, comes from this movie. And at the end of this commercial, it's like I noticed this old style United States steel logo and their slogan at the time was we're involved, which I don't know if that's a threat or <laughs> it's a, a promise, a promise. <laughs> but uh, I thought that would be a really, really cool design. So uh, so I, I took their old logo with we're involved and and just like it is at the end of that commercial and set that up as a t-shirt and then uh you know watching the um the d23 presentation with dick nunes we're all of course dick nunes fans um he retold the story about working on the landscaping at the contemporary resort before it opened and someone came to him and said I've never laid sod before, Mr. Nunes. What do I do? And he just looked at the guy and said, green side up. <laughs> and so <laughs> I made a, uh, a Nunes landscaping green side up since 1971 T-shirt with kind of like a little thing with the uh, arrows pointing up towards sort of a stylized version of the contemporary resort. So if you are a Dick Nunes fan like the rest of ours, are, the rest of us are, it's like you might enjoy wearing that for mowing the lawn or uh, other events at, at least one of at least one of our retro magic guests was one of the people drafted and was laying sod in the middle of the night oh. so we'll get to hear that story interesting in person from a participant it's a good father's day gift there if you're shopping really oh that would or be mother's day or saint patrick's day <laughs> green side up green, that works. green thumb day <laughs> Earth Day. Ar Arbor Day. Arbor Day. <laughs> Any day. <laughs> Tuesday. Wednesday. <laughs> Any day that ends in Y. Well, we have been burning the midnight oil. Uh, and if there are, that's why we're, we're a little punchy now. But uh, if, if you are interested, Brian mentioned at the top of the show here, uh, we do have the retro, we do have the Lake Buena Vista Historical Society 
uh, Seasons Greeting Tower available, and uh, there are limited quantities left. And once those are sold out, they will not be made again. Uh, so be sure to check out lbvhistory.org forward slash donate, and your donation will uh, earn you the right to have one of these fantastic gifts sent to you, which is great four or five inches of the, the old tower. Now, I might be crazy, but that Season Greetings Tower reminds me an awful lot of the Earful Tower when it was dressed up with the Santa hat. Exactly. It kind of resembles that. Kind of resembles that. Kind of resemble. I mean, the font is similar, but yeah. you could probably draw some other parallels there. Okay. Okay. It's very reminiscent, should we say? It is. It's reminiscent. Of that. Yeah. So if yeah. you were a, if you were a fan of you know old Disney MGM or knew someone who was a fan of old Disney MGM, and maybe that person also liked Christmas, probably that would be a good thing to get for them—a nice, unexpected, yeah, gift. Absolutely. Uh, a, if, if you don't get it for yourself, it, so. yeah. If you don't get it for yourself, certainly it would be good. For somebody else, since, you know, since this is not a visual medium, I think it helps to kind of describe uh, mm -hmm. that in, in this case. And hopefully I, it's I'll tell you, it's I, it's I have all of our ornaments because, of course, I do um, <laughs> primarily because you send them to me. So I can't uh, I just they just show up. And I, I got to say, it is it is beautiful. If it's very well with the Gertie that we had before um, those those two together, you know, make quite a pair and for someone who, you know, was as big of a fan of Disney MGM as I was, it's like I just look at that now and I just smile every, every time I go by my Christmas tree. <laughs> well, thank you to everybody who donates and thank you uh, to everybody who has already donated for that. We will be back in a very short while. Uh, we are planning on a, a holiday New Year's episode, so we'll get that out to you uh, relatively quickly as well. And uh, we will see you in the new year. So have a great Happy New Year, everybody. Thanks for listening. And with that, Brian, take us out. Follow the Lake Buena Vista Historical Society on Twitter and Instagram at LBV History and on the web at lbvhistory.org. For all things Retro Disney World, including exclusive merchandise, visit us on the web at retrowdw.com and on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at retrowdw. And follow our hosts, Todd McCartney, on Twitter at WDWMS, Hal Bowers on Twitter and Instagram at GoAwayGreen, JT Couser on Twitter at LS1JT, and on YouTube at Rubber City Motoring, and on the web at RubberCityMotoring.com. And you can find me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Brian P. Miles. Retro Disney World is the monthly podcast of the Lake Buena Vista Historical Society a nonpartisan, nonprofit, tax-exempt 501c3 organization and is not affiliated in any way with the Walt Disney Corporation or any of its subsidiary or affiliated entities. You were the last. <laughs>